Hello, and welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my movie soulmate, podcasting partner, sometimes political enemy, always religious enemy. Steve, how are you today? Ciao! Ciao, <laughs> Sam. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, you know... I'm back to that now. I want to make a point. The last time we were doing an episode of this, I was apologizing for the fact that we hadn't done an episode in a while because I was talking about how life kind of intervened and I had some things going on I had to take care of. And as you all know, because you're all human beings or most of you, I assume, um, some of you might be uh, Russian bots, uh, that you would understand. And then right after that, I had a child. Um, so as a result... The this, nerve. Yeah, the nerve. So as a result, you know, I'm apologizing again for it being so long. Um I certainly do not mean to alienate the very few listeners that we have, and I hope we haven't lost any of you in the uh, in the long interim between our last two episodes. That being said, for this return episode, we have chosen something super, super niche, in my opinion, or is it niche? Niche, I think it is. Yeah, so I think, is. I think that in the in the truest spirit of what this podcast is all about, we have gone in the nichest possible direction for this episode, and I couldn't be happier for it, and I'll explain why. You remember when I told you how excited I was to do that Val Kilmer episode, and how I felt that Val Kilmer, when he was a star, was kind of a barometer for... Um, movie lovers where if you met another guy or gal who loved Val Kilmer it was some sort of indication that they really liked movies in a serious way absolutely well he 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 might as well be like Tom Cruise Denzel Washington to the actor who we are choosing today to base our episode around and that is the extraordinary Tilda Swinton i just mentioned to some family members um, you know, pretty pretty well well. Uh, what is it? The, the equivalency of being well read as far as movies go. Well, uh, that, I don't think such a thing exists. Well watched, well, well watched. Well, let's, let's well watched is weird though. It's like someone's yeah. watching you, and you were cool with it. <laughs> <laughs> well reviewed. I don't know. Um, and I mentioned that it was going to be Tilda Swinton, and three of the four said, "Who?" Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and that's too bad. Yes. You know, <clears throat> now they knew once once they looked up their her biography. Yeah, right. Well, they what did they know? Was. was it Michael Clayton? Which we're not they doing, by the way, guys. Know Michael Clayton. Um, one of them looked it up, and oh, the, she she was the Ice Queen in Narnia. Nine, which, yeah, in I was Narnia. literally about to say was it. And I'm glad <laughs> she did that movie because I hope she made some money. Because this does not seem like a woman who's highly motivated by money in her life. But she's maybe still... not. But she's not below it. She's not <laughs> beneath it. She deserves to have it. <laughs> She deserves. She, she, she's 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 one of you know. I think the Marvel Studios like to pick off great actors. Yeah, just kind of show just to show off. Has she well, been in a Marvel movie? Oh, met several. Really? Uh, well, she she's uh, Doctor Strange's. Uh, oh, okay. Well, you know, good for her. And 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 then she appeared in Endgame, the most successful movie of all time. Oh, I didn't know. That. Either way, good for her. She deserves it. You know, I, I was going to say I have this theory about actors in general. And by the way, I call her an actor because I think. That term, actor and actress, at this... You know, I'm not trying to sound too woke, mm-hmm. but in my opinion, it actually doesn't... I, I really, like... Let's talk about the Academy Awards for a second, just a side tangent. Um, I don't understand why we actually separate these people, because it's not an athletic competition. You know what I mean? Like, But it is a competition. An actress can be better than an actor. You see and frequently I'm, are. And frequently the be- are. The best picture actress could yeah. very well you know be light years ahead of the best actor yeah so just to me is it's very odd that we decided to gender uh separate 
actors and actresses as if somehow like it requires a different set of muscles to do the job. <laughs> you know, really it's, I get, they probably do it honestly, Steve, just for the ratings so they can hand out more awards. Well, I mean, consider when this, uh, the Academy yeah. Awards came out, I think the first one was handed out in 1928. Yeah, yeah back then they really mm-hmm. didn't know. They were like, yeah, dame, see? Like, yeah. it requires a different frontal lobe uh, measurement to uh, require to cry in such a way they do on command. Like, yeah, you're probably right. At that time, they really did think it was an athletic sport. Um, <laughs> and, must, and must be segregated thusly. All yes. right, so, sorry, that was a side tangent. To get back to what I was going to say, I've often felt that, Actors go on runs, in my opinion. Um, And what I mean by that is not only runs of critically acclaimed movies, but runs of good choices. Um, I always say, you know, and I'm going to point them out. There was a time when I thought Russell Crowe, if he was in a movie, you knew it was going to be a good movie. Not because he was a great actor, which he was, but because he was making great choices. And then I felt Guy Pierce was that guy. I felt there was a little while there where if Guy Pierce was in a movie, you knew it was going to be good because he was making great choices. With very few exceptions. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, the movie they make for money, but for yeah. the most part, like runs. Then Vigo Mortensen was that guy. And I was like, man, if Vigo Mortensen's in a movie, you know it's good because he's always making good choices. Then Joaquin Phoenix was that guy. Hmm. And think about all these people is their runs didn't last, and they were fairly condensed. We're talking over the course of maybe three, four years. Tilda Swinton, if you look back at her career, has been on this run almost her entire career, where she's just constantly making good choices. But don't you think well, that's you could say that about Joaquin Phoenix? Couldn't you no. Say that? Really? No. Um, maybe. I don't know. That's a good question. Well, with a few interruptions. With, with a few, few maybe you're indulgences. Right. Maybe you're right. I was gonna say um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a better yeah. comparison to um, Tilda Swinton in the sense that I think if you look at back at his filmography, it, it should go down as one of the greatest of all time mm. for any actor in the history of the world. Being of an older generation, uh, I mark like Paul Newman. If yeah. you saw some, he, right. he was so picky. Yeah. He said he only ever made one movie for the money. And then one if, well, movie. Eventually, he only wanted to race. So if he was in a movie, <laughs> you knew it had to be good. Had to pull him out. He, I mean, right. he said it himself. He said that in the second half of his life, um, he cared more about racing than movies, but he still loved to act. But it was just more. He wasn't going to do a movie that he didn't feel passionately about if it took away from his racing. And as a fellow racer. I understand. We should do something on Paul Newman because he is kind of an underrated actor because he's so good looking. He was a matinee idol. Yeah. Also, he is n- such also not an a, not, excellent actor. Yeah, not a lot of people have heard of him either. So, beg your pardon. <laughs> yeah. I'm just oh, messing oh. with well, you. Well, that's true. <laughs> you should, guys, you just see the look on Steve's face. He nearly leapt over. I was the, offended. Yeah, I can't, he was like bug eyed, wide eyed. <laughs> it's funny because somewhere around the the 80s. He, start, he stopped working hard, and yeah. he became a better actor. So here's what we're doing right now. We're trying to talk about Tilda Swinton. And That's all we're true. Doing, all oh, we're yeah. doing is talking about a bunch of men. <laughs> so let's get back to Tilda Swinton. Sexist dogs are we. Maybe one of the reasons, besides the fact she's picky with her movies and she often chooses little scene indie movies, but also maybe one of the reasons... You know, it's funny talking about her as if she's somehow under-recognized when the fact is she's won an Oscar. You know what yeah. I mean? The highest, uh, The highest award... That her peers can give her. So her peers clearly know. I mean, this is a, I bet this is a woman who I'm sure her community is like, she's amazing, right? I bet you other actors talk reverentially about her. The general going movie public don't. These two movies aren't very well known. And yet I I looked down, um, you know, the list of 
nominations that the, both of these movies got. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she was, she was pointed out. Yeah, right, right. So so many critics awards. Yeah. So um anyway, so just to sort of before we get into our next movies cuz we've been we doing been doing our normal thing here, but um I was going to say, you know, her run has been extended over years and at the same time I think that because she doesn't make that many movies in general, people sort of like don't realize it, right? So there's a whole whole reason for this. She's not te- she doesn't tend to be the lead in big hits. She doesn't tend to make high profile movies in a row. Sometimes they're separated by a year or two. But I mean, this woman, if you just go down her filmography, whether it's we need to talk about Kevin, which is even later in life, or I think she was in a movie called Julia where she played a drunk, or um, there was a movie she was in directed by Tim Roth starring Ray Winstone, which is one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. She is just every single time. Well, what's the name of the movie? I don't remember. Um, I, I guess I'll give it away, but basically about a family where the father, played by Ray Winstone, is raping his daughter. It's pretty intense. Yeah, yeah it's yucky, but it's a good movie. Um, the first time I ever noticed her was actually in The Beach with um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Not a great movie, but a good performance on her part. And then I think Michael Clayton is her highest profile role. That being said, there's a, there's, she's got a ton of hidden gems to choose from. Yeah, I am extremely satisfied with the two hidden gems that we are choosing. And the first hidden gem today, and by the way, these are both, I had seen both these movies before Steve, but I was super happy to talk about both of them. And I'm hoping that Steve was happy to see them and then talk about them. But our first movie on the agenda is the little known Italian film. I am love. Okay. Steve, why don't you hit us with the facts about I am love. I am love. It was uh, released at least in the United States um, July twenty third in twenty ten. Not a terribly old movie, but about eleven years old. It runs exactly two hours and uh, two hours. Sorry, that sounds like a, like I got an accent or something. And it's rated R. It cost uh, three point six million. It's not very much. Uh, it looks like it costs a lot more. Yeah, you so, see every so, dime on the so screen. So bravo. Yeah, you, you see. Every dime on the screen. In the United States alone, it made uh, $5 million, which is okay. impressive for a foreign language movie. By the way, it was shot almost entirely in Italian with a smattering of English uh, later in well, the Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. And worldwide, it made $12 million. It was directed by a, uh, a by I believe he's an Italian, and I'm going to butcher the name, Luca Guadagninan. Nino. That's... Look, I, I feel look guys. Look, guys. Cut us a break. <laughs> yeah, right, just cut. We don't mean anything by it. We're ignorant. We get it. We're a couple of rubes. Like, just give us a break. Nobody's yeah. perfect. We watch movies. We don't read books. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we sometimes we listen to them though. But, yeah, yeah. Hey, I listen to books. Yeah. <laughs> he directed um, probably his most famous movie is Call Me by Your Name, which got a lot of Oscar buzz. Uh, oh, he did Call Me by. That's right. I knew that. Call actually. Me by Your Name. This um, is better. This is better in my opinion. Yeah, uh, uh, another movie called Suspiria, which was a remake uh, of a movie uh, years made years ago, and a movie that I'd seen and I, and I had been impressed with, uh, A Bigger Splash, uh, which also stars uh, Tilda Swinton and Ray Fiennes. Uh, okay. Really good movie. Uh, it was written by, uh, well, you know what, I'm not even going to go over the, the three people uh, who wrote, who wrote it? it. I, I I've never heard of them. I hope uh, I hope those three people wonderful. are listening to this podcast, going, "How could they do this to me?" <laughs> Actually, I'm trying to spare the pronunciation. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm going to do it. Barbara Al- Alberto, even uh, 
Cochonillo and Walter Fasno. I, I assume you did a tag, better, but I'm not 100% You did sure. a better job on that than you did on the I director. sounded more confident. I'm not sure I did a better yeah. job. Well, that's all that matters. <laughs> this movie was nominated for an Oscar for Best Costume Design. Strange. You could argue, you, you could argue oh. Maybe because of her outfits? Is that it? Is yeah, that why? Yeah. Just for her outfits? Because they're really important. And they okay. change as, as, you know. Well, we'll get into that, too. Uh <laughs> It was nominated for a lot of um, Best Foreign Film yeah. Awards, Critics' Awards, uh, too numerous um, to, um, to list. Okay, so let me give you a little backstory on my experience with this film. I watched it years ago, loved it when I first saw it. It was just like random. I wasn't intending. You know, I just saw my, I turned on, I, I liked Tilda Swin at the time. I was just, I think I was really getting into her as an, as an actor. <clears throat> I said, you know, let me give this a shot. And I really, you know, I just, I fell in love with the movie. And then recently... I did the exact same thing. I just was in the mood to watch this movie, and I watched it. And I told you, I said, let's just, I said, let's just do a generic episode of a, uh, of um, hidden gems. You know, just we won't have a theme. And then we, because I wanted to talk about this movie so much. Um, and then we decided to do an entire Tilda, Tilda Swin episode, which I'm extremely happy about because uh, I love both the movies we chose. Um, so that being said, I'm gonna do a really quick summary of this plot. It's super easy to summarize. Now, check this out. This is what a great actor she is. Tilda Swinton plays a Russian woman who marries into a super successful Italian family. They own a textiles factory in Italy. So she's a woman from Russia speaking fluent Italian. So you got to imagine the headspace she's got to be in as an actor to do this. With a little bit, <clears throat> I think, a little bit of Russian accent. There's no, got to be even harder. It, even if I didn't hear it, I'm sure it's there. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Because she's such a pro. She marries into this family. She has... um. <clears throat> Three grown children. They're all in their like early twenties, basically. Um, her eldest son is basically primed to inherit the family company. Um, her daughter is discovering um, her own sexuality in her own way. Her youngest son is pretty much a nothing in the sense that he's just not an important character in the movie. Um, he might be a little cynical, and that's it. Um, but anyways, here's the here's the deal. Her eldest son befriends a poor chef. Like, right, like, like, like this guy, he's a chef, he's, he's in his 20s, and of course he's a world-class talent, and he doesn't have any money, and she falls in love with him, and they begin an affair. That's the movie. That's the movie in a nutshell. I don't think I need to reveal anything past that, right? And this movie is sumptuous, and it is gorgeous to look at, and it is almost um, monarchical in its aspirations. Like, they, they, these people might as well be kings and queens, right, in the corporate sense, Um and it's just a lot to take in. Now, I obviously love the movie, but before I talk about why I love the movie, I just want to ask you a question, Steve. Do you like the movie? For me, <laughs> it's not that easy. Okay. I hated this movie, mm. and I loved, I loved the look. I loved the technique. There's, there's, he's doing some amazing stuff at, at a service that, servicing <laughs> a story I can't defend. Okay, so I'm hurt. <laughs> um, let's get into why you hated it. Let's get on. First off, let's get in why I liked it. Okay. 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 This movie starts out with scenes of uh, Milan, right? Yeah. I think they're in Milan. And that makes sense, right? Because that's where all the you know all the fashion and all that, all sure. that stuff comes. And over the credits, you see these cold, icy shots mm-hmm. of buildings. Yeah. And they are so. It's so forbidding. Yeah. It's not inviting at all. But then you get invited into, once you get into the interiors, apparently there's, 
the movie starts with this big celebration they're having. Big family get together for the grand, for the grandfather who started the factory. So the patriarch of the family. They're kind of suggesting that he might be on his last <laughs> leg, and yeah. maybe there could be a passing of the torch. Also, you never see him again. He does like literally sure. after the opening of scene, he dies. You gotta concentrate to catch yeah. that too. By the <laughs> yeah. way, yeah. you yeah. really gotta concentrate. Anyway, when you go inside. And it's and the colors are automatically so much warmer. Yeah. They're earth tone. They're um they're far more inviting, and yet the atmosphere isn't that much warmer at all. Yeah, right. Which I I, I love the idea of them pulling us in from the from the cold to serve us up some uh, for, for some more cold. Yeah, right. I did like that. I love his technique everywhere. What he's saying, I, I just don't dig what he's saying. So what? <laughs> all right, because I I have a feeling, Steve, that something political is coming, and I hate you know this is this you is, know it's not not really okay. So let's see. It's hear. more emotional than although this movie, um, <clears throat> you could say is it was was Me Too before Me Too came along. I don't see that, but continue. This movie is about um, sexual liberation. Interesting. Okay, that, would, that, that's that's what I got. I would think of it, it as emotional liberation, not sexual. Well. I guess you could tie the tie those two together, but her attraction to uh, the chef was it Antonio, I believe, yeah. is is purely <clears throat> carnal, purely so? purely sensual. Yeah, uh, there's there's no intellectual. Uh, there's no intellectual. No, but uh, there role. is because she's also an amateur chef. So there isn't. She she falls. That's more the, sensual though. She gets seduced. She has a dinner. Yeah. Okay, with uh, she actually meets Antonio at the beginning of the uh, movie. Kind of interesting. Antonio is a guy mm-hmm. who apparently is also a very swift rate uh, in, in track and field because when he's when, a racer, when when her, when her son Edo, who's going to inherit the place, is it is it Edo 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 Edo. Apparently, even before this movie starts, they've had a race, and yeah. traditionally, every male in this in this family always wins the race. That's more of that uh, royal <laughs> regal uh, expectations that right. you mentioned before. It's almost like jousting. Yes, they expect the prince to always win the jousting tournament, therefore justifying his 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 role as prince. Right, and and it's a big deal that he loses <laughs> to a poor chef. Yeah, the chef brings a cake. Okay, now mm-hmm. this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. He brings a small cake to this family function. I don't even know if he knows there's a big family function. To the function. grandfather's birthday party. Right, but I... I, I he to apologize a... for winning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was the question. Yeah. And one of the... One of the, one of the it's more of a plot point than mm-hmm. an emotional thing. But um, Antonio works his way into the affections first of Edo. Yeah. Because these guys are very close, yeah. you know, and then he works his, uh, you know, he he um, he seduces uh, Emma, or the she mother. seduces him. No, no, no. He does the first <laughs> seducing. He seduces with prawns. All right, Steve, she calm gets, down, Steve, calm down. <laughs> she gets. Uh, they they have this dinner. Yeah. Uh, or I'm sorry, this lunch It's actually a lunch with yeah. two other family members, yeah. two female family members. Her, I think, her mother-in-law and her daughter. Mm-hmm. I think. And right. she, she goes to this place where no, her mother-in-law Antonio. and her future daughter-in-law. Oh, it's with Eva. Okay, yeah, yeah Eva, her Edo's, future. Edo's fiance. Right, I, I beg your pardon. Yeah, and she gets an orgiastic <laughs> taste of these prawns. How's that his fault? <laughs> He's just a cook. You don't. Yeah, he was calculating enough. Well, I, this, that's that's a question. I shouldn't say calculating yeah. enough because you don't really. The movie doesn't put you in a position to su- to suspect his um, 
his motives, although things do work out awfully well for him, don't they? No, but they won't at the end. We won't get into that. Okay. But I'll, I'll, if, I think look, you could argue that too. Look, but, uh, look, ultimately, if his goal... So here's what happens, right? We're not going to give anything away. Ido wants to finance Antonio's idea of a restaurant. Like the idea is Antonio's this brilliant chef working at his, his father's restaurant, but Ido deserves to have his own restaurant. Or not Ido, excuse me, Antonio. And Ido, the rich son of this textile family, wants to finance it. Now, this is important. Antonio has this concept yeah. of a restaurant, a, like, a, you know, a five-star restaurant, yeah. but it's two hours away from, from Milan, two, two hours away from anywhere, hard to get to, and only the most artistic Dishes will be served. Hey, you know what? That's real. I watched that show Chef's Table. Uh-huh. People legit. I mean, there are there are Michelin star restaurants that like you got to take helicopters to. I can dig that because um, I think that's part of the appeal. Yeah, like the super like wealthy. If you can afford, if you can afford yeah. this, you can afford to, to yeah. take the helicopter. Yeah, I mean, that's like the whole idea is like the super wealthy uh-huh. be like, and you have to like ride a mule up to the top of a hill. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's uh-huh. that's the whole idea. Give me Olive Garden. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look. Uh, Everything he does, everything Antonio does, could be interpreted like a calculation to a calculation to worm his way into this family in order to uh, <laughs> secure a restaurant, yeah. seduce an attractive mom. But uh, the, the filmmaker really never calls his motives into question. You never really feel like he's calculating. Right. You feel like you feel he's pretty earnest, actually. Yeah. So, so I disagree. I disagree. Here's what I think. Let's get back to the cake. I think that he knows he has befriended, purely by chance, right, and, and sincerely, one of the wealthiest people he'll ever meet in his life. And I do think he doesn't want to lose that connection. I don't think it's as— um, Is the cake net- a form of networking? Yeah, well, I don't think it's—no, it's—I think he— I think he, he it's not as cynical as if I bring him this cake, he'll finance my restaurant. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's like, man— I like this guy. He's super wealthy. He could potentially help me in life, right? Right. And I beat him in this race, and I wonder if he'll take it so badly that um, he won't want to see me again. And as a result, like, maybe I'll miss out on opportunities in life. You know, I think you can like someone and also want to use them at the same time. I think that's the truth. I think that, you know, if any of us, imagine you met a billionaire, and, and you really liked the billionaire, and he liked you— I think you'd have a hard time thinking to yourself, I wonder like what being friends with a billionaire will do for me in life. And I think that cake is kind of his way of trying to be like, you know, being afraid that not only will he lose this friend, but he'll lose a potentially very valuable friend. But I don't think it's as cynical as let me bring him a cake so he can finance my restaurant, which by the way, at that point in the movie, there's no plan to finance his restaurant. Now, in regards to the mother there is no question in my mind that he seduced her for any other ulterior motive than he was attracted to her. He's a chef. He's not a businessman. And we got to make something clear. Her husband in the movie, who's probably the least developed character in the movie, is a one-note, serious businessman. He has no passion. He's completely dull. He's loyal, by the way. He's very loyal to his wife. That's the big problem I have, and again, so, we can get yeah, into that later. She wrongs him. This man is, this man is without any degree of imagination, yeah. which the filmmakers intended. It, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's almost, he's almost they're too, trying, they're, too dimensional. They're trying to create the contrast between him and Antonio, but by creating that contrast, it makes it very clear that Antonio, who is an artist and a chef, is just following his heart. Right, it's not ulterior. Antonio's design 
is not to uh, seduce this woman to get his restaurant. Quite frankly, he has already achieved getting his restaurant. Yeah, I could see this and only being a, a it's problem a hindrance. with him. And, and yeah. he knows it, and it's a hindrance for him. Mm. Um, well, as I said before, I, I didn't. You know, he, I think he seduces her because she's so beautiful. Yeah, not oh, because boy. Um, she. And has she ever been more beautiful in a movie? I'm sorry to objectify Tilda Swinton, but mm -hmm. I'm not used to seeing her look like this. You know. <laughs> People, you know, if, if a woman looks, uh, to use a phrase, a goddessy beautiful, as yeah. somebody once uh, referred to Faye Dunaway, yeah. you know what? Uh, they present themselves, a lot of times, well, she's the filmmakers, the both the filmmakers and the actresses <clears throat> intend yeah. to, to, to do it. I don't think it's objectifying somebody sure. completely. They are still human. You still recognize them as human. It would be wrong, you know... I'm not talking about you know Barbara Bach yeah. in, a, in a pair of cutoff jeans yeah. and the Dukes of Hazard. I'm talking about somebody who, whose beauty comes from more than her looks, but how how she carries. Have it. you ever seen Tilda Swinton dressed in the real world? No. Uh, okay, so Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. It's like outrageous what she wears. Oh, yeah? It's like she. It's like a cross between MC Hammer and GI Jane. <laughs> so so the point is like I'm not used to Till Swin putting on a dress and looking so feminine and so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um I'm just not used to it. Uh so getting back to the movie in Antonio, you know, I don't we haven't really gone to the crux of what you said you hated this movie. Hate's a strong word. What is the crux? I enjoyed hating it too, and I really enjoyed hating it. Interesting. So what is the crux of your problem with this movie? Because we haven't gotten to the what is it? What boil it down to its <laughs> essence. The essence. Um <clears throat> Emma's disregard for her family members is is flat out cruel. Okay, okay. You know, and what? I think, and I think from the filmmakers' point of view, and uh, not not to condemn the character as much as the filmmakers, the filmmakers are indifferent to everyone except Emma and Beta. He her, almost they almost the feel comical. Beta. The, the, oh, that's the daughter. Beta. Yeah, Beta. Yeah. It, by the way, I'm not only bad with Italian names. I'm bad with everyone's <laughs> names. I, I, my wife has a talent. She can re she can remember anyone's name the first time they say it to her. Like she'll remember it for life. Me, I one time I forgot my aunt's name to her face. Like, as an adult. How old are you now? Thirty five. Well, you're getting older. You know, you're getting <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Expected to have more often. No, uh, Beta. Uh, her, her her mom Emma Tilda yeah. Swin finds out in the most unlikely way that uh, Betta, who is currently going on, uh, you know, seems to be having this relationship with this, with this other guy mm -hmm. who seems to be designed by the family for her. Yeah. She's getting... But she goes to the cleaners. Yeah. She, uh, she is handed a CD yeah. that they took out of a pocket, and then mm -hmm. she does something that she would not do. She opens a CD. She wouldn't have done that. Why would you open a CD? There's nothing in the CD, no liner notes. You would not open the CD. Okay. Sure. What if you want to know what's on it? What? Maybe, maybe you want to know what the band is. It's on the, it's on the back. <coughs> it's on the back of the CD. Anyway, she finds out that she is, that her, her daughter is attracted to um, a, uh, a woman. Uh, a, a woman. Yeah. And uh, um, she's kind of been lead. She hasn't been able to tell this, this boyfriend uh, designate designate by the yeah. family um so it's kind of a mystery ida yeah her brother that's ito. the ito ito i'm sorry ito that's the person she can tell that's the one she feels closest to yeah she, I, I feel the movie has affection for ito i feel the movie has affection for all of its characters except obviously the mother-in-law uh -huh. the future daughter-in-law ito's fiance who's basically going to be 
the mother-in-law like so the mother-in-law is, is essentially the matriarch of the family but she is a lots of plastic surgery she's a rich man's wife that's the only way i can put it like she you know not, she looks too young to be that man's wife no she just like there's a lot of plastic <laughs> surgery going on there like that's you know i All live in, i live in old town alexandria <laughs> yeah. i have seen it um but to the crux the crux of my problem yeah. uh with this um well before i get to that the sexual liberation, I think, uh, is 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 illustrated when the two women, Beta and then later uh, uh, Emma, they yeah. get the haircut. Yeah, haircutting is is a sign of sexual. You say emotional liberation. Yeah. I can't deny that. Yeah, I, I won't deny that. Um, here's my problem with these two characters: is they don't come out and tell the affected loved ones what's going on with them. Well, hold on. So you're going to hold it against this young girl that she doesn't tell this guy she's not that interested in that she's gay when she's not even sure she's gay in the beginning. And then basically the second she finds out she's gay, she does tell him because he meets her at the train station. And she's like, dude, I told you, like, don't don't come after me anymore. So I think that's not a good point. I, I firmly and strongly disagree with the point about her. Well, <clears throat> I, I, I think. I, you have too much sympathy during, for a during, character who's a nothing. During, during a... That guy... You're saying that Beta uh-huh. should have told this young man who's in, like, two scenes. Like, you're holding... <laughs> you're, the entire movie, you're going to say you didn't like because she didn't tell some nothing character that it's, she's gay? It, it's his indifference to the feelings of that guy. The rest of the family, okay... Mm-hmm is dead weight. <laughs> no. And that's the problem. That, in a nutshell, is the problem I have with this movie. There's only two members of the family who are dead weight. I disagree. The father, her husband, Emma's husband, and the youngest son. Don't kid yourself. <clears throat> Edo is dead weight. No way. This movie is a... Con- this movie's like the difference between Annie Hall and Manhattan. Okay. Okay. Go on. Annie Hall is the... Um, is the movie for you know you you have to be accepting of open minds. Alvy Singer is actually the villain, mm-hmm. the Woody Allen guy, because he wants to suppress Annie Hall. In Manhattan, uh, you know the Woody Allen character, yeah. he he wants to cling to the to the uh, traditional ways, <clears throat> and he sees you know uh, people who who want to who you know just want to want instant gratification. As you know, yeah. hey, you know we're going to be dead in a thousand years. You know, don't you want people to think well of us? In in that respect, the conservative people in this movie are kind of sneered at, and Ito is the essence of conservatism in that he wants to keep the traditions of the family. He resents selling the he resents selling the uh, the um, the business the, the textile business. factory. Yes, he 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 talks about tradition. He talks about value with his younger brother. Okay, <clears throat> yeah. and he's kind of sneered at. He has a ridiculous comical. But Fate. he's the hero. He, but see, this, I don't. I don't see him. I don't. I don't think they think he's. A, he's oh, a, the director, I admire him. No, the director thinks he's the hero of that B plot. So if the B plot is that basically the father, uh, in Emma's husband, sort of inherits the company fifty fifty with Ito. So the grandfather in the very first scene of the movie makes a surprising decision. He gives the company first. To his son, Emma's husband, which everyone expects, the tight-laced businessman, the perfect, you know, businessman's son. But then he says, but you also will be a 50-50 partner with your son, Ito, which surprises everyone. And in this B-plot, because basically as soon as uh, Emma's husband, I can't remember his name, um, 
inherit Credo, I think. Yeah, Credo, Credo or something. Like that, yeah. uh, inherits the company from his father. Sounds uh, like a Star Wars name. Right. <laughs> That's right. It's true. He shot first. Um, <laughs> All right. So as, as soon as he inherits the company, he decides, let's sell it. Like, let's just get out while the getting's good. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, there's this B-plot surrounding the movie, which is about whether or not they should sell the company. And in my opinion, the director is firmly on the side of Ito, who does not want to sell the company. And here's what's really interesting. I look at it from the liberal point of view. <laughs> He doesn't want to get the the factory workers laid off. Like for him, it's like it's it's interesting. I I see him as having you know he eats lunch with the factory workers there. He brings his fiance down where the factory workers are working to like eat a pale lunch with them. But the point is, I believe the directors are firmly in his camp. Okay, then explain the fate. I know we don't want to give um uh spoiler spoiler alerts. The the fate the fate is but nothing it is, more it is than kind for, of for melodrama sake. That's all. It's just for the sake of melodrama. This is a drama, and a I think he one. sees them e- even the the, the, tra- you know, yeah. he, the traditions he wants to adhere to yeah. as at, at the at best um, futile. Okay, everybody talks about it's a changing world. You hear yeah. that from a number of characters, including some of the characters mm-hmm. who are changing. Yeah. Okay. Um, she uh, Emma, yeah. her conversion is indifferent to the husband, and they've they've completely. <laughs> Made the husband so that he can be the recipient of her uh, indulgence uh, without us feeling too bad about Emma. You know, I don't like that. I have brought up, I've brought movies to this podcast before that turned out you didn't like. Mm -hmm. And you brought up points, and I had to sort of begrudgingly be like, yeah, that's true. I don't think any of these are good points. I think these are all, no. Like, the only point I will give you, and it's Mm -hmm. a flaw in the movie making is that they made Emma's husband, Credo, too one-dimensional um, because they were trying to create contrast with Antonio, but a slightly more sophisticated filmmaker would have given that character some depth to make the situation more complex because it is a complex situation. He has not cheated on her. She's cheated on him. He might be kind of a, I don't know, like a boring guy, but he certainly doesn't deserve Right, what she's doing to she him. She says, "You no longer know who I am." Whose fault is that? I just the point <laughs> is, there. I don't think the movie in any way is a uh, is trying to um, make him out to be a villain, but at the same time, they're not trying to make him out to be likable. I don't. Uh, that's fine. Yeah. That, I, I don't really have a problem with whether he deserved it or yeah. not. My problem is the fact that. She can um, dismiss, you know, thirty year, thirty forty years of yeah. marriage, so blithely. Well, here's kind and of and without p- consideration. And by the way, this does damage to <laughs> other yeah. people in yeah. the movie too. So, so here's part of the issue, though. Um, and I'm not saying what she did is right. Um, he kind of bought her, so and not in a terrible way, but in the sense that he went to Russia for some sort of trip when he was a younger man and found her boiling. Borsk, like cleaning her clothes in borscht. I don't know what you call Russian soup. Um, and actually, Russian soup's an important part of this movie. Um, yeah. I don't know. He like found her in a shtetl. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what you call Russian villages. <laughs> like, you know, like, that sounds about right. Like a poor Russian hag. And he was like, what a beautiful woman. Like, come back to Italy with me and live like a queen. And she Mind was, you, we're talking about the 70s. I don't yeah, know how. The kind of hellhole. And the... she was like, all right. Like, that sounds good. You got a lot of money. Right? So she goes back with him. And 
You get I this, think she says he refers to her as kind of, he saw me as a treasure. Yeah, so, but that's a problem, right? And what the way I kind of feel about this is that she has lived a certain type of life for a long time that probably the younger version of herself never in a million years would have thought was possible. And then eventually, just like how cats like to die outside, you can own a cat, right? Um, I had a street cat, a cat that um, we found, like he crawled into our house one day. We kept him for, mm-hmm. I don't know, how, he, he lived for like 19 years. It was wild. His name was Thursday. He actually learned how to talk by the end. I shit you not. <laughs> he could say, hello, Sam, my name, which actually meant feed me. And it sounded like this. <laughs> like that. My my feeling is that it took That was him, not a sound effect, ladies and gentlemen. That actually came out of That's right. My feeling is that it took him 20 years to put two and two together that hello was what you say to someone to get their attention. And I was Sam, the guy who fed him every day. Um, but the point is, when he was dying, when he was dying, yeah. the vets told us that he, he needed to die outside. That he would go out of our house where he had lived for 19 years, find himself a private place outside, and die. And the point I'm trying to make... Not that she is dying, but she's reverting back to what she knows, which is not to say poverty, but a completely different lifestyle, a lifestyle of human warmth and maybe less materialism and also less. uh, Well, yeah, you know what? Warmth without materialism, because the truth is what she, you know, she said she lived in a family or loving parents, a very different type of atmosphere. But what she moved into for the money, quite frankly, was cold. And not warm and very materialistic, and she and she reverts back to what she once was, um, and what she once had, which is warmth and love and the lack of material possessions. I mean, hell, this movie. Where does that leave the rest this, of her this, family, though? This Where movie, does that leave the rest? This of This movie ends with her making love in a cave. I mean, that's how far <laughs> she's fallen from a from like basically a walled off mansion, like you know, like Hitler's bunker. <laughs> um, so you know, she really. Uh, I don't know, like. That's the problem I have with the yes, movie. Look, she, the natural state is its own justification. Right, so, so Steve, let me ask you a question. And I don't buy that. Can a woman do what's right for her? If a woman does what's right for her mm-hmm. and it completely destroys her family, how do you feel about that? I don't have... A, don't get me wrong. I don't have a problem with that. It was the duplicity. But she carries on this affair behind the back of her husband, behind the back of her son. Sure. That's what an affair is. <laughs> Steve, it's an affair. I, that's, that's the problem I are, have. Are you, it's one thing if she, if she has these, um, uh, these feelings and, and then decides to end it. You yeah. could justify it. But her cruelty, uh, her view of her family mm-hmm. as dead weight... kind of sickens me. So let me, uh, <laughs> let, let me remake the movie. But don't get me wrong. This is an amazing movie to watch, even if you hate it. Mm-hmm. There's this great... I, I want to point out that there's this fantastic scene, and, and I only noticed it the second time. It, it seems like there's an, an engagement party yeah. for um, Ito's fiancé. Right. I don't yeah. think it was, but I, I, that's it was. the impression. It was an engagement party, yeah. It shot from <laughs> up one story. Yeah. She's looking down up on Up on it. one story, yeah. She's looking down on, on this, only... The, they're not obvious. They don't have a shot of her looking down. Yeah, we only discover it when her um, when her maid Ida comes in and closes closes the curtains. She was watching that, and maybe that's stirring something in her. I admired that subtlety. I really did. Way, it stuck with me. The best moment of this movie is with that maid Ida. 
it was a really interesting touch on my um, in my opinion i loved the woman that this this movie did something very smart which is it recognized the relationships between wealthy families and their long time servants um who are essentially de facto members of the family and at one point ito who's feeling a lot of uh, kind of stress with his new position as like a de facto head of the business and the fact that he doesn't want to sell the business, cries in the lap of the maid, the head maid, whatever you want to call her. She's, she's sort of the head of the staff of the household. He cries in her lap because for him, she's a second mother. And I thought it was, you know, I'm not a person who grew up in an environment of wealth like that. And I thought it was a very interesting touch to see how close every single member of the family is with, what's her name, Ida? Uh, yeah, Ida. How close they are with her. And there's a moment at the end of this film between Ida and Emma that for me was breathtaking. I really, I won't give it away, but I thought it was one of the most powerful moments. I just, I, when I think about that movie, it's always the first thing I think about. And I think that woman, even though I think uh, Tilda Swin, this wonderful actor who we built this entire episode around, <laughs> is one of the top five actors in the world, in my opinion. I think that woman, who's played Ida, stole the show. She, she has my favorite line, which we can get to later. But uh, Ida's also one of the people who suffers the, the wreckage. Absolutely. I don't, I don't fault her for finding <clears throat> passion. And if she has to leave her husband, okay. Mm -hmm. It, it's it's it really is the it, it's it's the idea of the filmmaker that ancillary characters and their suffering don't matter so long as she's liberated, and that's the problem I, I have. With I hate this. to play into your argument, but even worse than that, one of the children approves of it to make it easier for the audience to approve of it. Did you get that? I yes, I didn't like it. Yeah, I figured you wouldn't like um, it. She gets she. The, the, I only family figured member, you wouldn't like it after I heard your horrible opinions on everything. This family member gives the approval, the yeah. only approval, yeah. of Emma's deeds with a little head nod, which yeah. I thought was a little conventional and a little. But it's a breathtaking sequence. That entire final sequence of the movie is breathtaking. The music, the pacing. I mean. I don't know, Steve. How about the... Uh, were you equally impressed with the uh, symbolic bird trapped in the church? Mm. <laughs> when she finally tells her husband... Yeah. Uh, she, by the way, you want to talk about... So let's do best lines of the movie. Okay. Uh, my favorite line of the movie is after Emma finally tells her husband that she's been having an affair, he looks at her and he says, the coldest thing I've ever heard. He goes, you don't exist. And turns his back on her. The Whoa. first moment where you get any idea that he has any emotion whatsoever, <laughs> they finally put something into his character. But it's like he has, but at the same way he, and it doesn't land. He, but not it like may that, have had impact on you. It doesn't land for me. But not only that, he he's he's also they make him sound like a sour grapes. Well, worse than that, they make him sound downright evil. I mean, it's like this idea that he hears her. He 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 takes in the betrayal. And then in a moment goes cold and then reverts to the like he basically because he's a wealthy man and he found her from nothing. She doesn't exist. Yeah. Now she's nothing. And that actually precipitates the final breathtaking sequence of the movie because once he says this to her, she knows she's in trouble. I mean, real trouble. Um, I Do you think so? I think. No, not like he's going to kill her. Not that no, he's no. going to kill her, but I think that made her decision to do what she does easier. Sure. Cause she's scared. 
Um, I just, I thought that was a breathtaking line. Uh, it's, it's the only. Oh, it, it stays with you definitely. Yeah. You're right. It's so cold. I mean, it's just like most men would be, you know, emotional wrecks. But because mm. of their entire history, his wealth, her dependence on his wealth, the way he found her, he's able just to look at her and say, "Okay, you've hurt me. Now you don't exist." You know, mm. you like I will move on from you because I have something and you have nothing. It's really interesting. What's your favorite line? It's from Ida. <clears throat> yeah. Um, at that scene where she's uh, she had been overlooking uh, looking over yeah. the uh, the party, uh, Emma seems kind of alone, and yeah. she I, apparently for the first time invites Ida to uh, to yeah. have dinner with her. And she says, thank you, ma'am, but, you know, I have my ways. <laughs> so there is a little distance. She refuses to eat with Emma, yeah. not in a nasty, cold way. Right. She feels like there has to be a hierarchy, more than Emma does, yeah. you know, who's paying She's her. She's smart, by the way. She's I, smart for doing that. Because you don't, even if the, if the wealthy try to pretend like they're equals with you, don't, don't, don't uh, take that bait. That will be your downfall. <laughs> She's smart not to do that. She, she she knows her place, and it's it's. It's not that she knows her place. She knows well, that if she takes that order. bait, it uh-huh. will only lead to resentment from the wealthy side of the family or the wealthy family. You see, it's a trick. They want to <laughs> offer it to you, but they don't actually want you to take it. If you take it, you're screwed. Because then, what it's saying, they're saying, "Oh." I, I'm a regular person just like you. Why don't we eat together? But the second you say, okay, they say, oh, you think you're as good as me? <laughs> you see, it's a yeah. trick. She's smart. She's no chump. But in, you have to concede that in this case, Emma probably isn't being isn't isn't laying a uh, class warfare but trap. I, but Ida is not willing to take that risk. Perhaps, but yeah. I, I I don't think it's it's a uh, self protection. Yeah, I honestly think this is a part of a conservative versus free spirit which okay. i think this movie uh, uh battles between anyway she says um but you know no thank you ma'am but you know i have my ways and and yeah. and uh, emma says you they could change meaning her ways yeah. and she says a simple a flat no <laughs> i think that gives a character integrity that yeah. she has that's probably unsurpassed in any of the other characters right so let me um we spent a lot of time listening to your terrible opinions <laughs> about why you don't Wait, like we get this, to the next about why you don't like this movie. Um, Mind you, I, I resent, I resent the conclusions they come to. Mm-hmm. I resent the path. I, I, I love the trip, but you're, you're, I, I don't hate. I said I hate the movies. I yeah. hate aspects of the movie. It's, ama- it's amazing to watch. Because we spent so Especially much, the second time. Because we spent so much time listening to your awful opinions on this. Okay. Um, here's what I want to say. Okay. If you like movies, then this should be a movie you like. Right? Mm-hmm. That, I, real simply, <laughs> right? There are movies for grown-ups, which are rare, 1%. And there are movies for children. You think this are, has a grown-up mentality rather than grown-up <laughs> technique? I disagree. Both. Both. No, I disagree. And not only that. This movie is simplified. No way. No way. This movie is not simplified. Mm. Um, and not only that. Steve, and we have talked about this before, you cannot go around faulting every movie you morally disagree with like it's, uh, what were those Nazi films by that woman? Holy crap. And then what was that woman, <laughs> the Nazi filmmaker? What was her name? Uh, Triumph Rennie, of the Will. Rennie, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Triumph of the Will. Whatever. Triumph of the Will, right. You cannot go around every time you morally disagree with a movie thinking that the movie is actually bad as a result. Maybe it's just complex. But I didn't... 
but my, I, I think that my opinion is complex. It's not easily and one-sided. I give him full credit for um, you know, various things. Is your scenes. problem with... full, full, full credit for technique. Yeah. Magnificent technique. Absolutely. But you in think... the service, in the service yeah. of a rather simple-minded, uh, you know, of free spirit versus uh, conservative class warfare kind of thing. I, I, so this is, I wasn't impressed. Again, I wasn't impressed with the intellect behind the movie. This is, but this is, I think the politics at play, how poor woman oppressed by her rich family. And therefore everything she does is excusable. Right. Is that what this all boils down to that? You think the filmmakers are excusing her behavior under this liberal idealism that because <laughs> They were rich and therefore must be cold and, you know, not likable people that anything she does to them is warranted and justified. And no, that this no, 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 itself- not, not warranted and justified. I'm not saying that the, I'm not saying that the filmmakers say the rich have it coming. Yeah. No, you're Sim- saying they're simply in uh, the filmmakers are simply indifferent to their suffering. Or not only that, you're saying that potentially these are simplified. Let me prove it to you. Let me prove yeah. it to you. The hospital scene. Yeah. All right. When they come. Uh, you know, to announce uh, don't, what's don't, happened. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. Okay. There's a hospital scene. Yeah. Very dramatic hospital scene, and the heads of all of the char- the ancillary characters. This is how indifferent the filmmakers are. The heads are cut off. It looks like bad composing, except it's deliberate. It is very deliberate. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? That's because he, they don't care. The filmmakers don't care what their reactions are. They are indifferent to them. Nothing matters. Except Emma's, uh, you know, uh, uh, freedom from from sexual (laughs) repression. One thing I, you know, watching this movie, I thought it was more sophisticated than you put. And I still I still think it is, Um, especially because they never did anything to imply that Emma was mistreated or had a bad life. And as a result, I think the movie is more complex. I don't think the movie is as simplified as you make it. I don't think it is. I really think the movie has quite a great deal of sympathy for almost all of its characters. I think it could have made Credo slightly more two-dimensional and shown... I think that basically if they had made Credo a more charismatic figure and loving husband, like even though he is a loving husband, but more outwardly loving, that his line at the end, his turn cold, would have been much more effective because you would have seen how cold he can be. Because... He is a, because he's a cold fish throughout the entire movie. The line doesn't land as hard. But what if he was a gregarious, friendly, warm fellow, and she cheated on him? Who could turn it off like? Who a could switch. turn it off yeah. like a switch? Mm-hmm. Right? Then it would have been even more breathtaking. Agreed. Um, but you're still wrong. No, I think you're making my point. In, 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 to a degree, to a degree. But I you're still you're wrong. Saying. This movie's sophisticated. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's adult. At it's, the heart, I don't think it is. I think, uh, like, uh, like I said, um, technical. It's a very tasteful movie. It's mm-hmm. amazing. I, uh, there's, this, there's this terrific scene yeah. in San Reno, I think it is, uh-huh. during the spring, after we get away from the grandfather's funeral, where she stumbles upon Antonio. Yeah. She, right now, she hasn't fallen in love with him, but she does have some sort of sense of this guy. Or maybe she has started, because maybe she's already she had those prawns, those evil... Yeah, no, this is... No, she... but the, there's a ama- it's an amazing sequence. It reminded me of the sequence of Jimmy Stewart following Kim Novak uh, in yeah. uh, uh, Vertigo. Yeah. I mean, and right down to the bun in her yeah. hair. You mo- Notice how often that, he fo- that uh, the director focuses on the bun, the tight 
rounded mm-hmm. bun, apparently, that has to be loosed in order for her to achieve sexual uh, uh, you know, liberation. I thought this, this, her stalking was just like Stuart stalking Novak, stalking, I don't know, an, un, <coughs> un, an unformed desire. Yeah, she does stalk him. It was and, amazing. I loved yeah. it. Yeah, you're still wrong, Steve. Uh, <laughs> give, me, okay. give me your bad pitch. How about some questions? Oh, you got, I don't have any questions for you, so give me some questions. Uh, we already talked about this one. Um, I, I, I had w- one question. Are you suspicious of Antonio's motives? We already uh, no, went over that. I'm not. Do you really think that uh, shearing the hair makes you sexually liberated? (laughs) Was that really? Was it too symbolic? Was it too heavy-handed in its symbolism? Uh, It's or it's a little silly. This movie was made by Italians. Okay. All right, Italians, (laughs) Steve. Like, come on, come on, dude. Italians, like, what do you expect, dude? It's a European film. Like, this is what they do, man. Colors matter, <laughs> hair matters. It's symbolism. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I'm Jewish. All right. Uh-huh. I've been to Italy. I saw more. I saw more Christ figures than Coke cans. Okay. Do you understand okay. what I'm saying? Like, I like that. <laughs> like, I never heard about that way. You know what I'm saying? Like, they like symbols <laughs> over there. It's, it's no disrespect. But they like their symbols. They're not too keen. This, the filmmakers aren't too keen on the church either. I remember, just, she finds out. She finds out about well, her daughter when well, she's the, when she's walking around a, a a gothic church. If the filmmaker is against, up this way, he he is unwittingly the pro. It's like a, a kid who says he'll never be like his parents as uh-huh. he's as he is acting like his parents. You understand? <laughs> like the filmmaker, if he's rejecting the church at the same time, doesn't understand all the symbolism in his movie is the direct result of the church's influence on his society and his upbringing. <laughs> um, Plus, you can't throw swing a dead cat yeah. in in Italy without hitting a church. It's a European film. It's yeah. a difference. Like, there's a reason the lives of others is so cold and austere. It's Germans! <laughs> you know what I'm saying, dude? This is an Italian film. Give it a break. Um, by the way, are, are, some, are you bothered with some of the techniques? There is a question where uh, I think um, Ida comes to wake up Emma. Yeah. A little child is waking up Emma. Yeah. When she's in this like, dreamlike yeah. state, and when she wakes up, it turns out to be... Ida. Did you find that pretentious? <clears throat> I found it pretentious. Maybe I'm a I'm, I'm slow-witted conservative, like you say. I, n- I don't know why they had a little girl mm-hmm. in her dream saying, yeah. trying to wake up Emma, and then it convert to Ida. What does that mean? What are the what is the blurry sex and then uh, her ecstasy on the on the? Let on me the give dome. you two examples, Steve. Okay. You before we start this podcast gave me a delicious piece of pumpkin pie. There, it was homemade pumpkin pie. Someone had to carve out a disgusting pumpkin yes. to make this pie. Okay. Then you put whipped cream on top. Uh-huh. And I was eating this pumpkin pie in sheer delight. Never <laughs> once, never once did I think to even scrutinize this pumpkin pie <laughs> because it was so delightful. All right, this was minutes before we started pressing record. Um, I felt the same way about this movie. Now that being said. You know, because I am a highly analytical person when it comes to movies. But when I was watching this movie, it felt like a warm piece of pumpkin pie with um, whipped cream on top that was homemade and therefore sophisticated. Not store-bought pumpkin pie. We're not talking a comfort food movie. We're talking a movie—I mean, look, Well-made with skill. Yeah, Absolutely. food's a huge part of this movie, right? And the other example I want to say is having seen the movie Dune recently. All right, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a small review of Dune real quick. Dune is my favorite novel ever. 
I had the movie Dune in my mind for 20 years. Right? Directed in your mind. Directed like in my mind for 20 years. I wanted this movie to be amazing. Flawless. Mm-hmm. There are great things about Dune. I could not get past every single mistake in the movie. And not in terms of comparisons to the book, mm-hmm. but just pure filmmaking. Like, they stuck out to me like sore thumbs. And it wasn't because I loved that book. Um, it was just, ah, it's like, I wish that were better, but it ain't. There were things that were undeniable to me. And I, and I was rooting for that movie to be amazing. And there are amazing things about it, but it, it ain't Lord of the Rings, right? It's not a smack. Like, it only made Lord of the Rings all the more impressive in how much those movies knocked it out of the park. That, to, to connect to this movie, I never once felt in this movie the need to nitpick. I was enjoying it so much. You know, I, I, I sometimes I, I question my motives. Yeah. Like, am I just looking for something <clears throat> because maybe the politics annoys me? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think I'm I'm honest enough with myself. I, I can tolerate a certain degree of politics, yeah. and I understand her her sexual, yeah. you know, awakening with Antonio. Yeah, you know, good for her. But, <laughs> Wow. Glad for that was what do they call it? incel? It was the most incel thing I like. That was like the closest <laughs> you ever got to being an incel. That was like her sexual liberation. Good for her. No, I Jeez, mean, Louis. how no, many listeners did I, we I just kinda, lose? I kind of meant that. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't begrudge her her sexual liberation. Okay, <laughs> all I'm saying is oh, it comes at a cost. The the filmmakers don't. Don't acknowledge. Sure. You know, Steve, I wonder when people listen to this podcast, they know I'm traditionally liberal and you're traditionally conservative. I wonder if people ever take about five minutes. I wonder if people ever say themselves, you know, Steve doesn't really sound that conservative. Not like maybe if the majority of these listeners are liberals, maybe they listen to you and they say, you know, he says he's a conservative, but he doesn't sound like the caricature of a conservative in my head. Well, boy, did you shatter those myths <laughs> this evening. I know I had to work hard. Yeah, at some point they're like, yep, there it is. I don't think you have to be a conservative, though. <laughs> yeah. To feel a chill at the director's indifference of the suffering of the minor character. I don't fair. think you have to be a conservative. Okay, um, I got one question for you. Which I have is- a good- Pitch though, but go ahead. All right, my question is: What were you going to say about the costumes and how they mattered? I think, um, you know, we talked a lot about the movie, and we yeah. didn't talk very much about Tilda Swinton's acting. Yeah. Uh, her her body movements are amazing. Mm-hmm. She walks not like a Russian peasant who became rich. She walks with the elegance of a very wealthy woman. She's been doing this a very long yeah, time. Yeah, she's practiced. those costumes accentuate that yeah okay absolutely. they're they, they cling to her to her body yeah especially the uh the um the blue one the the early uh d- during the grandfather's uh, yeah. uh it's cut to form yeah you know she's like a racehorse by the way that racehorse uh analogy also applies to ito because i think because uh, he races yeah right. he's a he's a track and field guy and they treat him like a <laughs> like like a like a horse really yeah <laughs> you know uh, true. winning or not winning yeah, I think the costumes, are, uh, especially how they, they um, you know, uh, uh, costume her. Obviously, yeah. when she gets the sexual liberation, when she's with Antonio, she's... Uh, she's naked. She's more, well, naked. She's literally <laughs> naked. They don't, they don't get credit for that. But, <laughs> no, but when she's walking, you know, when she's around the house, she's obviously far more loosely dressed. Yeah. Dressed like, like he is in, in the same class. Socially he liberated. Is, yeah. Socially, <laughs> sexually liberated. Right, Emotionally Steve. liberated. All right, Steve, what's your bad pitch? My bad pitch is 
Uh, House of Gucci meets Woodstock. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. Steve, I just had a kid on. I'm a bad pitch for you. <laughs> All okay. right, just just guys, give me a break. You know, I'm I'm running on very little sleep. That's true. You know, I my my, my child was just born two weeks ago to the day. And it's is today Friday. It is. Yes. Yeah, so my hey, child was born two weeks ago to the day. Lay off. Yeah, just just give me a break, all right? I don't I don't want a bad pitch today, but Steve... I have a better pitch for the next one. <laughs> Steve's was good enough uh, to make up for the lack of mine. All right, Steve, uh, you're wrong and I am love. Everybody, if you're listening to this podcast, that means you have great taste in movies and podcasts. Uh, do yourself a favor, listen... I mean, watch I Am Love. All right, let's get to the... I, I agree, too, by the way. I agree. Yeah, let's get to the next movie. Our next movie was also my pick, Um I'll talk more about it afterwards. I'm going to do my traditional little intro here. And that movie is Only Lovers Left Alive. Give my regards to that suicidally romantic scoundrel. Well, let's hope he's just romantic. I had a dream about your sister. I think she's looking for us. I'm really, really, really hungry. Their love is a race for survival. Where am I supposed to go? Go back and rot in L.A. John Hurt, Tom Hiddleston, Tilda Swinton. Excuse me. Nominated at the New York and Cannes Film Festivals. I have something very special for you. Not what I need. Only Lovers Left Alive, now showing on TV 1000. All right, Steve. So as also something I just realized after I said that, love in both the titles... That's true. Not a big deal. Um, you know, we probably shouldn't go over why each movie was named as it was. It's not readily apparent. I never thought about it. Um, okay, so okay. Steve, you want, let's hit me up with the stats. The stats. Uh, only lover left alive. Only now lovers. This, only lover. I beg your pardon. Only yeah. lovers left alive. Uh, was released in May uh, May twenty five of twenty thirteen. Just two years, uh, two or three years after uh, I am love. Cost seven million dollars. Didn't make very much money at all. Only grossed one point eight million. Uh, seven point six million worldwide. It was directed by Jim Jarmusch. Am I pronouncing that name correctly? I have no idea. I call him Jim Jarmish. Jim Jarmish. <laughs> He's an American. He's an American. The name might uh, convince you otherwise, but he is an American who's directed movies. He's been around for for Here, ages. I get a perfect explanation of him. The less mainstream David Cronenberg. Now how's that for how how's that for less mainstream? Exactly, <laughs> that's a pretty, that's, pretty that's my point. That's my point. If you're if you're like if he's the indie David Cronenberg, and if, indie, you know, yes. so there you go. <laughs> uh, he directed Down by Law. I think that's where he got uh, most of his. That's where he initially uh, really uh, became famous. Um, <clears throat> that's a terrible reference point, Steve. Look, if you want people to understand who he is, he directed. G- uh, Ghost, Ghost Dog, Ghost Dog. Well, that was later. That was later. He when directed first Coffee one, and the, Cigarettes. I'm saying the movie that put him on a map, though, was I think uh, Down by Law. Not what Down I ever. He did uh, Dead Man with Johnny Depp, which people seem to like. Broken Flowers with Bill Murray. Um, the Dead Don't Die with Bill Murray and yeah. uh, Patter- Swinton, I believe, Patterson, so. which is a pretty uh, acclaimed movie. And then actually, I think his most famous movie, if you really, for people who know him, it's Night on Earth, the Cab movie. Everybody at some point who has cable has seen Night on Earth and doesn't know it. And it's a movie that takes place. <laughs> it might be in my instance because I, I. You've seen don't Night on I've Earth? It. it takes place over one night on Earth and it takes place in various cab drivers' cabs. And it's got Winona Ryder in it, Armin Mueller Stahl, 
uh, the dude who played Gus Fring on um, Breaking Bad, Carlos Esposito. In fact, I oh, yeah. met Carlos Esposito really? at a screening of Night on Earth. Um, now, there's an actor who seems <laughs> like an actor's actor who hasn't made it as big as he, his talent is. For me, you know, I think for 99% of people... Well, look, he played an iconic character on television that people still talk about to this day, which is Gus Fring. To me, he will always be the cop who smokes the cigarellos in The Usual Suspects. <laughs> He'll always be that cop. Um, <clears throat> anyways, so where were we? We are talking about Jim Jarmusch. More stats. Uh, it was written by Jim Jarmusch, and there's mm. some credit given in um, IMDb mm. for some reasons, person named uh, Marion Besset. Okay. Uh, so it, in parentheses, it says adaptation French version. I have no idea what that means. I don't know what contribution she had, if she had much of anything, but I thought it was kind of uh, interesting. Apparently the title comes from a 1964 sci-fi novel uh, by David Wallace, but I don't think it's um, based, it's not based on that. He does, at least he has, he wasn't given credit for it. It was nominated for the Palm Door at Cannes. Is that how Did it says win? Palm Door? I think like so. A, like 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 you're in Florida and you got a palm tree by your door. Palm door. Little, yeah, or you got a, like you that. carved a, the palm door. That sounds like some guy like <clears throat> he's retired in Florida with his wife. He's like he's like and they carved a, a palm tree into their door. He's like I call it the Palm Door. That's how my friend my my high school French teacher would tell me to pronounce it. So I'm going with it. Okay, and it's at Can or Cans. <clears throat> I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce I think the it's S. Cons. Con? I don't know. Who I don't cares? know either. Screw them, they're French. There's America. We can pronounce it how we want. Um, the name <laughs> of the two title characters is Adam and Eve, but it is not, the, the point of reference is not the original <laughs> Adam and Eve, but rather um, from a Mark Twain work called um, The Secret Diaries of Adam and Eve. Okay. Is that it? Um, that's it. Okay. I'll give you a little backstory on my relationship to this movie, because I only saw it very recently in my life. A lot of times when I'm looking for something to watch and I have no idea what I want to watch, I will just Google top 20 best movies the last 20 years. Now, these lists themselves I couldn't care less for, right? Like, they don't matter to me. I'm not looking to see what is ranked in what position. I'm just looking to see movies I've never really thought about before or maybe missed. Like, what is something a lot of critics seem to like that maybe I just glossed over or didn't even realize existed? And I was doing that recently, and only Lovers Left Alive kept popping up. Now, here's the thing. I don't like Jim Jarmusch. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of this guy. Night on Earth has one segment at the very end of the movie that I think is astounding, that has stayed with me ever since I saw it, and I think is one of the most beautiful, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes in movies I've ever seen. It's one of the most human uh unique they tell a story so every, every you know on night on earth everything's a story so i knew this man had something in him it's like episodic <clears throat> it's episodic because it's literally it's like five or six different cab drivers over the course of a night um and there's one kind of like episode it's the very last one in the movie that is breathtaking in its humanism um that being said i find him a mostly boring director and a lot of his movies don't cut it for me and i think they can so you've be seen down by law no i haven't <laughs> oh um I did respect Patterson, which is not to say I enjoyed it, but I respected what he was trying to do. I just think the guy can be downright boring. But Night on Earth kept showing up, and I liked Tilda Swin, and I was intrigued. 
And I saw Night on Earth, and I got to say, for me, it was revelatory. It really was an experience that, you know, oftentimes I watch a movie, let's say a P.T. Anderson movie, and I'm watching it, and I'm saying to myself, this is a masterpiece. I'm clearly in the, like, first viewing, like, I know I'm watching a masterpiece. Like, Like, I'm just, like, in awe of what I'm seeing. And then some movies I'm watching, and I'm starting out slow with it, and then I'm getting more and more sucked in. And then by the end of the movie, I'm saying to myself, wow, that was a lot better than I anticipated. But then the experience isn't over. I keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And in fact, another movie I can compare this to in terms of how I kept thinking about it, how I enjoyed the movie even more after I saw it, just thinking about it, than while watching it, was a Cronenberg film, which was called A Dangerous Method, which was about Carl Jung and uh, and Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, Freud yeah. starring during his run of great movies, Viggo Mortensen. Um, so anyways, the point is, I absolutely loved um, this movie. And I loved it more the second time. And I'm going to just give it a quick synopsis. Um, It's about two vampires who have been alive for centuries who are essentially married. They're a married couple, but because they've been alive for so long, they don't even live together. They live on opposite ends of the world at times. They just like kind of do their own thing, but they are a loving couple. And then every, who knows, every 50 or 60 years, they reunite. And I don't know. I won't say it's like they're married again. They just, it's just like they're, I just think their idea of marriage does not mean always being together. It's just they're soulmates, right? Because they're both vampires who will be alive forever. So to them, time doesn't matter. They don't have to worry about not spending time with each other. They can go off and have their own adventures, and it's not a big deal because they know at some point they will reunite. According to IMDb, apparently she's 2,000 years old. He's... (laughs) 600 years yeah, old. He's a midi- so when he's you separate medieval. for a couple of years, I guess that would be like, right. like what, a, a week away? <laughs> right. So I'm not even getting to the gimmick of the movie yet. Before I even get to the gimmick, I'm going to keep uh, describing it. Um, both of them are responsible for many like literary works throughout human history. Like I think the male character, uh, Adam, played by, what's his name? What's that actor's name? Oh, Tom Hiddleston? Tom Hiddleston, who you know as Loki. Yeah. Um, From the Marvel uh, has, universe, yeah. I think he was, which which poet was he of the Romantic era? Was he Byron? I think at one point he was Byron. He met? I think he, I thought he met Byron. No, I think he was Byron. Was he? Yeah, because um, also, what's his name? The guy, who's the guy? John that, Hurt. John Hurt plays that famous playwright, Marlo. plays yeah. Christopher Marlowe. One of Shakespeare's contemporaries. Yeah. <laughs> so now, so basically, the guy who's Adam he's been many different artists and writers throughout his life. And at this point he's a, he's a rock and roll artist, but a very cult one who like, who like he releases records, but no one's ever seen him, And he's only known by the purest of rock and roll fans. Um, but here's the actual gimmick of the movie. The gimmick is they treat vampires like heroin addicts. This is the gimmick. Uh, drinking blood is not like drinking wine. It's like taking heroin and it's a fix that they must have, and if they don't have the blood, they will die from withdrawal. This is, And it's not easy to get the blood. And not only that, it's the modern world. So these vampires cannot suck blood out of humans because of all the shit that human beings in the 21st <laughs> century eat and drink. It's impure blood. It will actually hurt the vampires. I'll bet Bram Stoker never anticipated that when right, he wrote Dracula. Right. <laughs> it's very clever, you know, because I think it's, it is. it's, it's, it's a... Um, it's a, I don't know, uh, is it a, 
a metaphor for heroin in the sense of like bad heroin, bad blood, right? So the idea is they're looking for pure blood. Uh, what is it? B negative? What's o the, negative. I think o, it's o negative, negative yeah. is like the pure shit. And <laughs> uh, and, and I'm literally, they talk. Is like, that the universal do- donor? Um, I don't know what it type, is, but Adam literally goes to a blood bank at night and he bribes the guy who works there uh, in a very brief cameo played by the wonderful actor Jeffrey Wright. Another actor. Another actor is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he bribes him like every couple nights or so for O negative blood. Because um, the point is, it's too dangerous to suck the blood out of humans because you'll get sick from whatever the fucking shit. Because, you know, they don't they don't need a, a natural diet because everything's processed and all the chemicals, blah, 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 blah. But the point of this movie is they treat these guys like heroin addicts. And it's very clever. And even though it's not actually the point of the movie, it's just the gimmick. The point of the movie is just a meditation on life, quite frankly. I know that sounds super pretentious, but Jim Jarmusch is a super pretentious director. And this was the first movie of his that ever landed with me the way I think his movies land with other people who really like his movies. Um, I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And honestly, right now, even talking about it, I plan on watching it a third time because it's so dense. And I just think there's so much in it to unpack. And I like movies that have very loose plots where there's a lot of talking and the scene. You really need to be present in the scene. You got to not worry about what's going to happen next. And I think luckily I was primed enough, knowing enough about Jim Jarmish to not view this movie in what is going to happen next. But actually, I think this movie does have somewhat of a forward going plot, but not enough so to A, have any pace, but B... You know, I knew to watch this movie in the present. I always talk about how the second time you watch a movie is better than the first because you're more in the present. I was able to do that the first time I watched this movie, and I just really, really admired and enjoyed it, and I see why it's so universally acclaimed, and I think probably his most acclaimed movie. Steve, why did you hate it? (laughs) How'd you know? (laughs) Actually, I didn't hate it yet. I always felt that, you know, it, you really haven't seen, if, if a movie's really excellent, you haven't seen it until you've seen it twice. Yeah. And the first time I watched it, it was immediately off-putting. They had set one character uh, refers to, uh, I think it's Adam as a snob. He's a snob. Yeah. And that's really off-putting for the audience. But if you want, if you watch it both times, you can tolerate it more because there's a lot of fun in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great movie, so why'd you hate it? Oh, I didn't hate it. Okay, I thought you hated I didn't it. Hate it. Well, there's some problems I have with it. Okay, so uh, let's hear your fucking problems. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How many episodes in a row now do you have a problem with the movie? Well, I, I don't mean to be a spoiled you're sport. Getting, you're getting to but... get off my lawn territory. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the, one of the, uh, one of the things I love about this movie. Yeah is there's a sort of a comic interlude, a semi-comic interlude, in which um, Eve's so-called sister, I assume... It's uh, her sister. Well, but she says, not by blood. Oh, I thought it was her sister She actually blood. She makes a point in saying, well, not by blood. She made she made Ava a vampire. Oh, okay, okay. She okay. made Ava a vampire. Now, Ava is different from Adam and Eve. Okay? Adam is morose. He is done with life. He is done with... The zombies. Z- that's the phrase he gives normal humans. Living he has to drag, man. But disdain, and that's part of the that snob thing that can yeah. be really off-putting. Yeah, and and it. I don't think you don't ever completely get that. By back. the way, he's the worst sort of hipster. That's what they're making him out to be. He lives in like a random, like rundown apartment of Detroit that he 
powers himself, like, because he's also a brilliant nuclear physicist. But he's had the time, to be fair, to, like, you know, learn a lot of things. Um, but he's a hipster. They're all hipsters, by the way. Absolutely. Hipster, heroin addict, junkie, not actually. No, isn't that a good reason to hate it? No. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm kind of kidding. I, it, it definitely put me off in the first half of the movie. Okay. Okay. Um, they start talking about writers that most people, including myself, have either heard of but never read yeah. or never heard of at all. Yeah. Uh, mentions, um, you know, great uh, uh, composers that I've either never heard of or have heard of but never have listened to. So, you know, you kind of contract. And, and it, it, it seems like it's they're validating what this guy th- thinks of zombies because, yeah. of course, I haven't had... 2,000 years to read everything and listen to everything, you know? So I think they have a little bit of disadvantage. Sorry mm-hmm. if I'm being a little defensive yeah. by imaginary characters. Uh, Eve is different. <clears throat> Eve is the life mother. She, uh, the earth mother, uh, the nurturer. She loves Ava, her sister, despite all their problems. Ava is a, another hipster, only she's, uh, she, ha- she doesn't have the depth um, she doesn't have the intellectual depth of Adam. She doesn't have the life does. force. I think she has the intellectual depth of him. She never shows any sign of being. Uh... I thought she does. In fact, my favorite line. I got. I got to blow it right here. Uh, Adam has an instant hatred for Ava because he's she's she's everything he isn't. Oh, I'm sorry. Are we talking about Eve or Ava? Ava. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were talking about Eve for a second. No, no. He he despises yeah, Ava. Yeah, no, no. I, th- I thought you were talking about Till Swin's character not having oh, intellectual depth. She, when she packs to go yeah. from Morocco to Detroit, <laughs> yeah. she doesn't pack clothes. She packs books. Yeah. So that's All of conf- she is incredibly you, intellectual. You confuse me. And who's the actress who plays Ava? What's her name? <sighs> Mia... Uh, Malakowski. Uh, yeah, yeah. What was the, I can't pronounce what are the right, other movies? I always get her confused with the very successful next Source, Meryl Streep. Yes, yeah, Source Ronan. Source Ronan. I do too. Every time, I think they've I think they've crossed paths. Yeah, they're very. She, Mia Wachowski, whatever her name is, uh-huh. wishes uh-huh. she had Source Ronan's career. <laughs> I tell yeah. you, Source Ronan. Uh, the next Source Meryl Corona, Street. very good. Look, she that, is phenomenal. Look, she is going to be the most nominated actor in history. By the time her career's over, continue, she'll never pass Street. Continue with. The, she's already been nominated like four times, and she's, she's probably even, still behind Street at her age. No, I don't think so. <laughs> we'll find out. I'm that's kidding. A, that's I guess, a tangent. Sorry. You're right. She is incredibly young. Uh, the problem is that uh, Hollywood directors tend to um, chill on virtually every actress once they hit forty, except Meryl Streep. Well, let's know. hope it doesn't happen to her. Uh, you're right. You're right because she has an incredible career. Anyway. One of the funniest thought, and I only caught this as being funny the yeah. second time around, is Adam's relationship with Ava. Yeah, is just like Mr. Wilson's uh, relationship with Dennis the Menace. <laughs> what? <laughs> I swear to God, you talk about he something something about Ava, her her completely hedonistic, yeah, um, uh, l- lust for uh, lust for not life but lust for stimulation brings out the bitterness in Adam. I think she I think he finds Eva just an advanced version of a zombie. But not only that, um she's like the girl who doesn't know that the New Year's Eve party has ended. Yeah. And is super <laughs> annoying about it. Like she's one of those who will not stop. Yeah, she's fun for a couple hours, but then mm. when you want to go to bed, she's still trying to have fun. And then I'm going to spoil something. She drains his uh um Adam's only 
zombie friend. The only, his only connection to the outside his world. His only connection to the outside world, she drains. She, yeah. she, she doesn't even turn into a vampire. She kills him. And it actually precipitates the major crisis of the movie, which is that basically vampires can die pretty easily. In the modern mm-hmm. world, they really need blood, and uh, the sun will kill them. Lots of things will kill them, and uh, they can also be charged with murder. And there's a lot of there's a lot of risk with murdering a human. Um, and he's basically once Ava, in this very unfortunate sequence of events from her bad trip, quite literally and also metaphysically, um, kills. Uh, uh, Adam's friend, who, by the way, is played by the young actor who himself tragically died. Um, Anton, Anton Yelt, Yelt, Yelton? Yelton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the guy you might know from Star Trek. Played, played the, Scotty in Star Trek. No, not yeah. Scotty. The Russian. Chekhov. He played the he oh, played Chekhov. That, of course. Because Anton right. himself yes, is Russian. Right. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Anyways, um, so the point is, her actions actually cause the entire conflict of the movie, which is trying to get out of Detroit, trying to escape Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say is Eve is also a snob. So the Tilda Swinton character is also a snob. Um, I'm going to give something away right now because we're talking about hipsters. One of the major crises of this movie happens when they can't get the O negative blood anymore. Um, and they don't want to eat humans because of all the shit in their system. But this movie ends on a super awesome and hilarious and interesting <laughs> note which is that these two snobs you think about it like they'll only take the purest best blood but when it comes down to it if they have to they'll eat a human and that's exactly what at the end of the movie they are confronted with either death or survival and they choose survival <laughs> and they decide to eat a human and this is like if you took someone who's a food snob and he was starving and you offered him a Big Mac? Mc, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna go with McNuggets because McNuggets. Big Macs are good and McNuggets are terrible. Like McNuggets are genuinely the worst chicken nugget in the world, um, even are. like by fast food standards. I they're, tend to agree with they you. They are that bad. Yeah. Um, but the point is that your your hipster friend food snob, he'll eat those McNuggets gladly, and that's what <laughs> these two uh, hipster vampire snobs do. But this movie is just like. To me, this movie is very emo- emotional. There's a lot of emotion in this movie. There's a lot of boy. If you like literature, like if you're a, if you're a literature fiend, I'm sure there are. So, I was Wikipedia. A lot of references. There's a, There's a references, lot of references. Like I was doing a little deep dive on this movie, and I didn't even pick up half the literature references in this movie. Um, so if you're a reader of books, uh, Sean Jones talking to you directly. Watch this movie. Um, so it's just one, one of my friends who I know listens to this podcast and he actually hosts my other podcast with me, our literary podcast, full dusty jacket. Is that liter- your shame? Hey, is you, that you, your shameless plug? Yeah, but you didn't let me plug it. Full dusty jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. Look it up on iTunes and Spotify. Um, now somebody who enjoyed that podcast would probably get the jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, sardonic comments that yeah. Adam has. Yeah, Adam really appreciates the the, the top echelon of the yeah. zombies. Yeah, and I think, but the, he doesn't have heroes. He and, makes that uh, right. very clear. And this was a guy who became a vampire sometime from the Middle Ages to the Romantic Ages. And you got to realize he's now living in the modern world, and the modern world is tacky. It's not to his liking. I mean, I've always is even, he a conservative? <laughs> um. You know, it's easy for me. How do I put it? Well, you know what? That's not true. I was going to say as a white man, but I'm Jewish. And so for me, going back in time in any era wouldn't be great. Um, But if I was an Anglo-Saxon Protestant (laughs) and had a little bit of money, right, 
I would love to go back in time to like one of the romantic eras and just like live in a in an era I would hope is devoid of tackiness, but at the same time that just might be me romanticizing other eras. Um I couldn't be without central air conditioning. Sorry. Oh boy. <laughs> it's not and happening. indoor plumbing. Toilet <laughs> yeah. paper. Oh my gosh. You know, but just for a night I'd like to attend a ball. Fair enough. Like, like that wasn't uh, ironic. <laughs> you know I, I think mean? anybody with a little imagination, of course, would love to visit the Roman Empire. Yeah. Uh, or you know, uh, a, 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 a dinner with Leonardo da Vinci. So the point like is, for Adam, um, l- the modern world is a drag. Yes. And when he gets to meet up with Eve, he gets to experience the type of intellectual um, partnership that he would only have gotten in the Romantic era when he was with his contemporaries, uh, fellow writers and poets. I mean, this guy supposedly is, you know, uh, in, I mean, even in this movie, Christopher Marlowe wrote all, they, they play into the Christopher Marlowe Shakespeare conspiracy theory, mm. which is that Christopher Marlowe is actually William Shakespeare. So in this movie, you know, uh, the Christopher Marlowe character played by William Hurt, um, is uh you know he is William Shakespeare and so therefore they've befriended William Shakespeare uh, by proxy. By the way, I'm just gonna spoil it. I don't care. Um, <laughs> just like any movie about heroin, uh, Christopher Marlowe slash uh John Hurt. Is it John Hurt or William Hurt? John Hurt. John was, Hurt. Was I saying William Hurt? No, no. You said okay, John Hurt. good. Because I love John Hurt. I like John Hurt a lot more than William Hurt, and I'm a William Hurt fan. John John Hurt. <clears throat> does things in this movie i never, never saw him do before when he takes that hit of pure blood yeah the ecstasy on his face is something i've never seen him try before he's an amazing actor he'll try anything even this is one of his last movies the point is he overdoses on bad blood yeah just like you could overdose <laughs> on bad heroin yeah. um yeah but i just let's this just whole have... movie is premised on a joke i saw in mad magazine oh good <laughs> a, a little corner joke where um a vampire sucks the blood of somebody coming out of a bar and he's and the but the 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 vampire in bat form staggers off as a uh, yeah right you know it's a, that's it's, okay it's though insane. you know absolutely you, can, absolutely. Make, you can make a movie based on that um just a little side note of appreciation <laughs> I know it's a Tilda Swinton podcast but side note of appreciation for uh, John Hurt who is an actor I've always loved whether it is um whether it's obviously the Elephant Man um or it is Midnight Express or even or even Steve um the 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 Michael Cimino movie Cimino Michael Cimino yeah yeah Gates of Heaven why not he was too old for is it, it Gates but, of uh, Heaven is that what it's called or uh, Heaven's, Heaven's Gate. Gate Heaven's Gate he's good he was in too that. old for it but he was excellent I mean oh and in one of my favorite movies ever which might have been a movie you don't like I don't know so many of my 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 picks don't land with you which is the Proposition the Australian film he's amazing I mean he just if anybody was an underappreciated actor who might have actually been knighted by the Queen, it's John Hurt. Um, I mean, that guy, well-respected, well-loved. He never got the kind of fame with American movie audiences they deserved. He's also in my favorite um, 12 episodes of anything ever, which is I, Claudius. He plays Caligula. In an absolute masterful turn, one of the one of the most insightful. And I think that was before. That was before he hit it big. Well, yeah, of course, it was the BBC. Yeah. Um, one of the best reviews of anything I ever read, which is someone described his performance as it was the only time they watched an actor have nothing behind their eyes, which was him as Caligula. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's and pretty then I, good. <laughs> I watched it and I said, "Oh my god, he's right. He somehow 
the entire series when he's looking at people, he's not looking at anything. It's, it's pure <laughs> madness. It's derangement. It's of the highest order. Um, anyways, he was, he was having a high old time with that girl. <clears throat> but Tilda, let, let, let's get back to it. I mean, is this about Tilda? Tilda Swin is, Tilda. is the person who keeps this movie together. Yes. Um, without her, this movie falls apart because, A, Tom Hiddleston is not a great actor. This is a guy who I've seen in enough things now. I just don't think he's a great actor. I think he gives it his all in this movie, and I think he's good enough. Um, Tom Hiddleston seems dumb to me, and that's hard <laughs> for a Brit. <laughs> I give most Brits the benefit of the doubt of being smart people. Uh, it's just the accents. I can't help it. I'm kind of like, <laughs> I'm a little bit like uh, of a fanboy of British people. Um, he seems stupid, and in this movie, he's given it his all. Uh, is it definitely his best performance for me in his best movie. Um, but it's Tilda Swin who keeps the whole thing together. Good Lord. Yeah. There's a brand of actor yeah. who is largely accepted as really... They're, they're good actors, um, but they, they either they, they, they lack the talent or the will to go that extra yeah. up-notch. I, I think higher of, of him than uh, you do. I just saw uh, him in a, a miniseries, um, uh, The Night Manager, which I, I saw that. You've seen that. I saw that, and he's really stupid in it. He, he's not stupid. He, he's very, actually, he's one of those actors, and you've heard me say this before, who's really, he's very adept at intelligent line reading, to making, making sure that the character seems intelligent, okay, and that there's some emotion. But he, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet, and I think maybe he's young enough to develop it, whereas people like Warren Beatty or, or, or Robert Redford, who I put in the same category, never really punched there's through no pathos. They, they, there's no pathos. Yeah. The best actors, Joaquin Phoenix, Tilda Swin, uh, Sean Penn, Daniel Day-Lewis, Anthony Hopkins, their characters are filled with pathos, yeah. ticks, little things, little things that human beings can't control that they create. We all yeah. do little things that we can't control, and those actors create those things. They create super egos, ids, which is like, I mean, talk about like, it's one thing to read a line in a certain way. It's another thing to read a line in a way that the character doesn't even understand what they're saying. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's because the, you have to play self-deluded characters, which many yeah. of those actors yeah. usually didn't play. Yeah. So... Uh, back to Tilda Swin, um, you know, one thing I find so impressive about her is just her range of roles. I mean, yeah. she's I've seen her play drunk floozies. I've seen her play abused, wi abused wife. I've seen her play the mother, the traumatized mother of a Columbine killer. I've seen her play a warm, gregarious, blood-addicted vampire. I've seen her play a Russian, a poor Russian woman who marries into an Italian aristocracy. I've seen her play a cult leader of a group of uh, Gen Xers who live on a Thailand beach. <laughs> I've seen this lady do it all, and every single time, she's absolutely astounding. Um, but Steve, let me ask you a question. Do you like this movie or not? I enjoy it. The more you watch okay. it, the more you'll enjoy it. Yeah, that whole uh, Dennis the Menace, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Mr. Wilson, Tilda Swinton is Mrs. Wilson. Yeah, uh, the nurturing, yeah. loving, understanding, patient person. Yeah, you know she's she she's got past. Yeah, what um, Adam has not gotten past. Right, she saves the movie. By the way, 
Um, oh yeah, in, in I the, couldn't I couldn't take yeah. two hours with Adam. Yeah. So in the first I don't know ten to fifteen minutes, it's all Adam. Yeah. And it's only when she comes into the movie that the movie has life. Yeah. And I think it's meant to be that way, but boy, it's a risky gambit. It, it, it's really a risky gamble. When it turns you, you off. It, 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 I think if it did, it will do, I think, to some viewers what it did to me, put up your defenses. Yeah, absolutely. It brings up your defenses. When, when, when you're attacked as a species, and as, as Adam right. attacks humans, right. uh, you tend to well, you know, get like a that, little just, just bothered. Just his, his dullness. I mean, what's really interesting, why it's a gamble, is it's also it's gambling on Tilda Swinton's acting ability because for about 10 to 15 minutes, it's all Adam. It's all dullness and depression and slowness and just, quite frankly, not enjoyable. And then when she comes into his apartment, sensing that he's depressed, sensing that the viewer is depressed for having started this movie, she completely, with her charm and her performance, breaks down all the walls. And and creates a totally different type of atmosphere. And she does it that night. They dance together. She puts on music. She completely changes the entire atmosphere of the movie. And, you know, for a movie to start the way this movie starts, which is to basically make the viewer wonder, am I going to be super bored for the next two hours? <laughs> to gamble on one scene, 15 minutes in the movie, completely changing your mind is super risky. And it's a testament to Tilda Swinton's acting abilities. And I guess you could say it's a, an amount of respect that uh, Jim Jarmusch uh, extends to the viewer. Yeah. That you'll that well, wait it out. <laughs> I think Jim Jarmusch, I wouldn't call it respect he has for the viewer as much as a lack of self-awareness he has for what people like. Um, I really love this movie. I think this is one of my favorite movies ever. Really, I, I, mean, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't enjoy it quite that much. I just, I just loved uh, it so much. And that being said. I think Jim Jarmish has got his head up his own ass 99% of the time. <laughs> I really do. I think he's like he's like that he's like he's like a bad version of David Lynch in some ways, which is that I've always said about David Lynch, I'm not sure where the master where the I'm not sure where the student filmmaker ends and the master begins, but there's a master in there somewhere. Right, and I say student I filmmaker. Think he's, I think he's proven that completely in many movies. Yeah, so I, I say student filmmaker very derisively, mm-hmm. having gone to film school. Um, extremely derisive. It's a, it's a, it's it's a derogatory comment. So if any of you are in film school, uh, nothing you make is good. Straight up, <laughs> you will hopefully one day make something good. Live a life, live a life. Then um, look, use just, your skills. Just know what you're making is bad and learn from it. <laughs> um, so my point is, I've always there's always been an element for me with David Lynch, which is. Sometimes I I don't know if I'm watching the student filmmaker or the master, but I know the master's there. With Jim Jarmish, I feel like all the time I'm watching the student filmmaker. Until? Until this. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was watching the master. But that being said, I have to say, in Night on Earth, if if that was a student film, right, then that 10 minutes or 15 minutes at the end would have been the best student film ever made. It would have, honestly, I mean, it would have been like, because it would have, it's so self-encapsulated. Um, I mean, I'll tell you the story of it. Um, I don't want to give it away, but it's fucking Jim Jarmish. There's nothing to give away here. It's not the usual suspects. The end of that movie, the final scene, it's, it takes place in a Polish cab driver's cab. It's a dark and snowy night in Poland, and these two really drunk guys get in this guy's cab, and 
they start telling some sad stories, right? They're drunk and they're kind of, you know, in my life, blah, 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 right? They, they, they think that they're the saddest guys in the world. Is it in English or... or um, I think it's in Polish. Okay. Um, I, and I'm sorry if it's not Poland. It might be some other Eastern European country, but I think it's Poland. Then the cab driver tells them a story. He says that his wife and him had a child. They gave birth to a baby, right? They're only one. And they were told <clears throat> when the baby was born that it would only have about maybe 72 hours to live, that something was fatally wrong with the child. And he says to the two men in the back of his cab that when he learned this, he told himself he would refuse to love the baby. There was no way he could allow himself to love the baby. And that for about 24 hours, he refused to open his heart to this baby that was going to die. And then he says, and I'm obviously going to butcher all of the poetry of the script, right, and the acting. But then he says, at some point during the night, he was holding her. And he realized what a fool he had been, how wrong he was. And that for the next 48 hours, he gave this this child, this this human, this being, more love than he ever gave anything in his entire life. And he never regretted it because the only thing he regretted was not starting earlier in that, in that person's life um, because it deserved to have all the love before it departed the world. And that is to say something about all people in general. Um, so the point is, Jim Jarmusch had it in him. He had it in him to tell profound stories about the human experience. Um, and I knew he had it in him, but I never felt like he ever got anywhere close to that. And before Night on Earth, I, maybe Patterson came after Night on Earth or before, but I saw Patterson first. Mm -hmm. And I didn't love Patterson, but I thought he got the closest to that magical 15 minutes of Night on Earth. But it didn't do it for me. I still didn't feel it. This was the movie where I felt like those 15 minutes of Night on Earth were realized over the course of an entire film. Now, maybe not as in emotionally impactful, but the skill and and the and the uh, ability to say something um, without having to explain it too much or not enough, which he is prone to do, I felt it all worked. I mean, it really felt like watching a guy after making one 15-minute sequence that was pure art and then never getting anywhere close, it finally felt like him figuring it out. And I'll probably give more of his movies a chance after this. Or maybe I will never. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I'm not as well-versed in his movies. I've only yeah. seen a few. Me too, uh, but they and, were enough to not want to see any more until I, Night on Earth. I saw Down I'm sorry, by until, Law. Uh, until uh, I, Only Lovers Left Alive. I, I saw um, The Dead Don't Die, which I... Uh, yeah, that's comedy. I was completely offended by that. Um, what aren't you offended by these days? Well, no, Lord. no. Lord! <laughs> In, in, in The Dead Don't Die, he, he, he deliberately makes sure that the writing and the acting, that they, they don't even care whether um, they're actually making a movie or just the actors there who reference themselves as okay, actors. Great. They, 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 don't, they don't even make the effort, and mm -hmm. that's deliberate, and I think that shows absolute <clears throat> contempt for the people who are watching it. Um, you got questions for me? I have questions for you. Yeah. If Adam is so despondent, why he's why is he buying all these expensive uh, guitars? He Adam is at this are you point answering your suicidal. Own question? No, no, I'm just I'm just explaining. Yeah. Adam is suicidal. Yeah, he gets his buddy. Yeah, he's planning on killing himself with a wooden bullet, and not just any bullet, but a very dense 
bullet and his 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 uh his friend finds this this wood that's so dense it sinks can can somebody who is completely despondent and suicidal why is why is he still buying expensive first of all absolutely people can i mean you just uh, people are when people are at that state who knows usually but he, they give away but usually here's the people point. who are that here's, despondent give away here's things. the point for all of these two vampires' high-mindedness, they're full of shit. <laughs> That's the whole point of the movie, that for all their cultivated uh, tastes and complex emotions, at the end of the day, uh-huh. if it's between dying romantically and purely because they will never debase themselves with anything less than the best of the best in whatever <laughs> it is, whether it's music, literature, blood... Or eating chicken McNuggets <laughs> and surviving, they'll choose the McNuggets. And the point is, he was never going to do it. He would just, he was just, you know, there are people out there who romanticize depression. They, re- they really oh, are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are people out there, and I'm not talking about depressed people. I'm talking about people who wished they were depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have that one friend who likes to pretend like they're depressed, and you know they're not. Because what they really like to do is talk about themselves to you. Um, so I definitely think that suicide, other than suicide, can be an incredibly selfish act. Yeah, but the point is, he wasn't going to do it. He's too self indulged. He's he's too self involved. He wasn't. I, I don't. I don't. If he he had a chance to commit suicide at the end of this movie and he chose not to take it, <laughs> what's that tell you? Well, I guess it's more, less suicide than more uh, like poetic sacrifice. Yeah, look, he's in yeah. he's in his rock and roll Kurt Cobain <laughs> phase, right? He was never going to. It's the whole point. Your hipster friend is full of shit. <laughs> Your hipster friend likes true lies. You understand? Okay. Um, what's with the gloves? Why were they wearing gloves? I missed that part. They go out at they night. They all wear gloves. Why? I don't remember. When they went out to the bar. They, they, I know they wear them when they go out to the bar. They which wore is sunglasses. Yeah. I, was there something wrong? I think there's something a little off about their eyes. Maybe they wanted to hide that. But they wore <clears throat> gloves. I don't know why. Yeah. I have to look into that. I'm going to Google that. Okay, maybe maybe some weird vampire thing. Things they can <laughs> touch and can't touch. There's these creatures, these coyote-sounding creatures you hear that you wouldn't expect to hear in Detroit, and they have a little special effect shot where we they see them scampering in empty buildings. I get a, I get a feeling there are other supernatural I think, creatures. I think they are the coyotes, is the point. The, the vampires, they live the coyotes' existence. Night creatures, that's mm. all. Coyotes are creatures of night. Okay. I think they're nocturnal animals. So you think the people that they saw were other vampires? Oh, I have no idea. I think it's just uh-huh. a visual metaphor. That's all. Oh. I just think it's a visual metaphor. They might be, might not be, but the point is the the coyote and the vampire are one and the same. It's a, it's a it's like a kindred spirit. He gets it. Like these are these are night creatures. And it's just it's just you know, Detroit is an interesting place I've never been to, and I liked its depiction of Detroit, which is basically um a ghost town, right? Like a place there are people there but they're but there aren't. It's a place where a vampire can go live in pure anonymity, right? It's it's, yeah. it's, it's a strange place. I don't want to bag on Detroit. I'm sure there's people in Detroit. You know, Detroit's like... Detroit, Detroit of this movie is not a place you go out uh, to you a would, diner to get a, a hamburger. It's a place you, know? you go disappear. Um, yeah. Detroit makes Cleveland look like Chicago. 
right? <laughs> like there's if there's like a ranking of Midwestern cities, it goes Chicago at the very, very top, then Cleveland, many leagues underneath it to the point that Cleveland's made fun of. And then if Cleveland gets made fun of, Detroit is looked at like a tragedy and maybe rightfully so with everything that's happened in Detroit over the past couple decades. Um but the point is it depicts Detroit in an interesting way. And I, I'm curious how people from Detroit or who live in Detroit would watch this movie and feel how does it ring true for them? It I seems c- like a near bombed out post-World War II right, European and guess what? City. Guess what? In Detroit, uh, the United States military has conducted training exercises. Did you hear about the famous thing that happened under Obama's term uh, where literally the United States military was conducting uh, urban warfare training in like parts of Detroit and did not tell any of the residents and the residents thought they were getting bombed and hearing gunfire. They didn't have the, I never heard that before. Yeah. This happened under the Obama administration. They didn't have the decency to tell them what was going on. Hmm. So these poor people, literally poor, poor, like financially and also poor, just like the lot in their lives were didn't have the, the United States government didn't have the decency to tell them, hey, by the way, you're not being invaded by whoever. You know what I mean? That we're just running exercises. And that almost you want to believe that that's an urban <clears throat> myth, but no, it's uh, not. It sounds like you've researched it. No, no, there's literally footage of it. Really? Yeah. Ugh. You won't like where I saw. You don't like. You will not like where I got the information. Can you take a <laughs> guess? Uh. Uh-uh. Yes, you can. It's a filmmaker. Michael Moore? Yeah. Well, he's from Detroit anyway. He's he's yeah. he's going to be a little sensitive. It's from his film uh, he, Fahrenheit he, eleven nine. He hasn't been always the most scrupulously truthful. Uh, but this is documentarian. This is, this is true. <laughs> so. Anyways, uh, one last yeah. question. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Is it cheap to ratify your own views as a filmmaker? Express your own uh, uh, views as a fil- uh, filmmaker using these ancient. Uh, characters to uh, you know add legitimacy to your views. For example, his, his, his basically his his misanthropic conclusions about humans. Uh, you know, scientists aren't my heroes. Look what look what humans have done with them. By the way, um, your heroes aren't based on the victimization they get. It, it, he, it's like he dodges the answer. It seems like a clumsy way of of uh, Jim Jarmusch. Uh, you know, inserting. This, you know, this, this very cynical view about uh, Here's what I'll say. treatment of science. Here's what I'll say. You can be in an argument with a person about something, and you can be right. But if you haven't read as much as the person you're arguing against, you deserve to lose, even if you're right. I have always had an affinity for people who read and can back up their opinions, even if they're wrong. Um, because anyone who reads that much is showing intellectual rigor. Do you think Jim Jarmusch has read yes. all the references? Yes, I do. I do think that. And okay, I'm maybe. not his biggest fan. He probably would have made a better writer than he would have a filmmaker, honestly. Um, so the point is, you know, and you and I have discussed this about how there are certain people, they've got opinions. And, you know, I was joking earlier about you and I not reading, but the truth is we both read a lot. I read a ton of history, and part of the reason I like to do that, never has it been easier to win an argument you might be wrong in because your opponent hasn't read a book, right? So if I'm arguing with a guy, and I've read books to to be the basis, like nonfiction, you know, informational books, to be the basis of my argument, usually history, and I'm talking to someone else, the first thing I'll always ask is, and it's a real cheap trick, 
Where did you read? Where did you read the information for what you're saying? And if they haven't, and what, and when they're when someone's challenged on what they've read, and they haven't read anything, you'll see them start to stumble real fast, and you've got them right then and there. Which is to say, back to your original question, I don't have to agree with him, right? But he's clearly, in my opinion, shown that he has the intellectual discipline and rigor to have read all those things to cite them and use them to prove his own point. I don't have to agree with his point, but at least I know he's not making it out of his ass. You and I disagree on so much yeah, politically, but, uh, but, but I know yeah, but you, you read. I wonder if you get what I'm, what I'm trying, what I'm trying oh, to say. Oh, by having like you're Jesus-led using, credibility? Yes, what, yeah. what you're saying is my, my views are the same views that a person who had lived 2,000 yeah. years would naturally well, I tell come you what, to. I tell you what. <laughs> There's a very famous cult film um, called... Uh, is it called... It's not The Man Who Fell to Earth. Hold on. Uh, I'm going to Google it right now. It is about a caveman who never died. So I'm doing a movie. What is this movie called? Some, I, someone's probably listening, Iceman? No, someone's probably listening right now who's like screaming it out. <laughs> um, he's like, no, it's this movie. movie about, Was he frozen? No, oh, about man. caveman who, this is a super independent movie. I'm talking mm-hmm. like student film level. Who because never, it was a studio movie about a man who. Um, no, no, this is not studio. For, it's called The Man from Earth. The Man from okay. Earth. Okay. So The Man from Earth was made on a budget of $200,000 and it was a science fiction film written by Jerome Bixby, um, who I guess was a science fiction novelist. But the point is, this movie was an extremely cheaply made movie. It's one of the very first movies ever to basically be released on the internet um, and gain like traction, right? And this movie has tons of bad acting, tons of bad writing, and is also still hugely compelling. It's about a caveman who never died. Right, so it's actually the the caveman character. His name is like I think his name's like John Human or something, or John Never Died. It's some I'll tell you his name right now. It is some <laughs> it is some terrible. Uh, Let's hear the imagination here. Yeah, what is his name? Hold on, it's, it, what what is his name here? Um, oh, sorry, I'm on the Wikipedia of John Bixby. It's it's his name's John Oldman. John Oldman. John Oldman. It's a little explicit. Yeah. So the point is. <laughs> This college professor is, he's moving. He's leaving his job. He's like in his mid 30s. He's about my age. And all of his colleagues, he's throwing a party for his colleagues, and they can't understand why he's leaving. He's very accomplished in his field, and he's just picking up and leaving out of nowhere. He's, he's, he's like leaving all his shit behind. He's just, he's just packing up and going. And he decides, he says, Well, you know what? I've done this a lot in my life. He goes, But I've never told anyone the truth. He's going to tell you now. And he tells them his life story about how he has lived for centuries. Um, just, he doesn't know why either. He doesn't know why he's immortal. He just is. He just doesn't age, I guess. But here's the point to answer your question. In this movie, he claims to have been Jesus, Buddha, you know, every single important person who ever lived, he claims to have been. He might as well have been fucking Dracula, right? But the point is, that filmmaker used... I'm sorry, that that writer used what you're talking about in a much cheaper way, in a much less sophisticated way, in a much more on-the-nose way. So I can forgive what Jim Jarmusch has done because I saw uh, The Man from Earth and know how bad and self-serving it can truly be. Um, that being said, I like The Man from Earth, and I recommend everybody watch it because I... F- how do I put it? 
I'm always impressed when I see something and I say to myself, yep, that's about the best I could have done. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Okay. It, it's, it's not yeah. a compliment either. <laughs> it's just like, if I was working, if I was firing all cylinders, right? If, that's like, what you would do. It's probably the the most talent I have in me. You know what yeah. I mean? Like in an <laughs> ideal world, the most talent I have in me is not Stanley Kubrick. It's this hack who made this <laughs> shitty online movie that people actually really like, and I like it too. I like it despite all its flaws. So yes, to answer my question, to answer your question, excuse me, not cheap. I thought that last observation you made, that uh, that, that concession was... Uh... The most interesting thing we've we, any of us have said since we started this podcast. You must be kidding. <laughs> I thought it was fascinating. Um, yeah. So, so the point is, uh, no, I don't think it was uh, cheap. I think, I think he has a lot of intellectual rigor to mm-hmm. look. He's not. But choosing, he doesn't have two thousand years worth of. Intellectual he's not choosing rigor. Jesus though. He's choosing Byron. I mean, who the fuck knows who Byron is? Like. Well, there are a few. <laughs> yeah, literally a few. Some people. Some Two people. of them are in this room. And I've never even read any Byron. <laughs> never read any Byron myself. I only know of him. I haven't read him. All right, you got any other questions? Uh, no, that's it. Just my bad pitch. All right, hit me. Um, I, I thought that this was um, What We Do in the Shadows. Oh. Movie. Not Love that it. TV thing. Good TV show. Uh, meets Leaving Las Vegas. Ooh. <laughs> Very similar to mine. I love what we do in the shadows, both the TV show and the movie. I love the movie. I didn't like the the first se- first season. Oh, you're the, crazy! No, no, no. It was it was it was a pathetic it was a pathetic attempt to recapture. It was it was like Family Guy imitating uh, the Simpsons. Let me tell you, Steve. Uh, Christmas has got to come for you soon. <laughs> really, we- but I will say, like Family Guy, it got a lot better. In its subsequent seasons. All right, I got a good pitch and a bad pitch. Okay. Right, First, I'm going to start with the good pitch. Here's okay. the pitch for the movie I'm really trying to sell. Okay. Okay. It's Interview with the Vampire meets uh, The Panic at Needle Park. Okay. Right. So if you, if you guys yeah. know what Panic yeah. at Needle Park is, it's Al Pacino's first movie where he plays a heroin junkie. Obviously, all of you know who Interview with the Vampire is. So this is my attempt to actually get funny for the movie. Here's my <laughs> bad pitch. My bad pitch is Dracula Dead and Loving It. Uh, meets the panic at needle park <laughs> now if any of you don't know what dracula dead and loving it is let me good for you g- good no for you. no bad for you i if you want to know I'm don't a, tell me i'm a movie snob uh-huh. i am the world's foremost fan of mr leslie nielsen the comedy styles of the genius leslie nielsen who you may know <laughs> from the naked gun series um he also made a movie about dracula uh st- co-starring the lawyer from Ally McBeal, the little weird guy that everybody loved. He was also in the Mr. Bean movie. I know who, I, uh, Peter McNichol? Peter think, McNichols, yeah, yeah. right. So so it's a movie starring Leslie Nielsen and Peter McNichols, and I went and saw it in theaters, because that's how much of a fan I am of Leslie Nielsen. Was that a Mel Brooks movie? Ooh, you know what? It might have been, and if it was... One of those genre movies? If it was, that means it's actually better than I'm remembering. Dracula, Dead. If it if it really was Leslie, uh, sorry, Mel Brooks, then um then the movie was actually probably, yeah, you know what? It is a Mel Brooks movie, which probably means wow. it was better than I'm remembering it. I was actually kind of like, you know, trying to be tongue-in-cheek. I really do love Leslie Nielsen, but like Spy Hard is a terrible movie that I love, right? <laughs> but, but Dracula Dead and Loving It may not be that bad, actually, if it's Mel Brooks. Um, not to say Mel Brooks is good, but at, well, at that point, uh, he some some of his movies were a little tough to take. Him in his prime, 
I, I don't know that you could get pound for pound much funnier. Well, or, I mean, Spaceballs. Uh, no, Spaceballs is amazing. I, I think he had a very brief window. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I consider his, his window of, of comic greatness a, a little briefer than most. Okay, anyways, that's our podcast, Steve. Any final words? Hey, you can... I think both movies are worthy to see. Yeah. And just, just because you have problems with a movie, and... The, you're always going to have some problems with the movie. I mean, even a masterpiece, you might have, uh, you know, a problem with something that it irks you about Citizen Kane. You know, uh, no. How, how, come they, how, how come they dumped the, the the first wife? Why do they dump the no. first wife all of a sudden? No, uh, it d- doesn't mean that you you can't appreciate um, some of the brilliance. You can you can conceive brilliance and flaws at the same time. Steve, let me ask you a question. Yes. Did you watch the critic, the John Lovitz show? I think yeah. How many seasons was it on? I saw the Only first two. season. Only two. Oh, I saw the first. It was season. the first series ever to be a follow up to The Simpsons. There was The Simpsons, and then before, and then right after was The Critic. The Critic was supposed to be the next Simpsons, even created by two of the writers of The Simpsons. Jay Sherman, the critic on that show, used to go, "It stinks." <laughs> that was his. This is who you're turning into. <laughs> Really, I mean, we're we're on a little bit of a run now of you not liking movies. I'll tell you what, the the um, our next podcast, whatever it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a honey. Uh, at least one of them will be a honey, <laughs> and a you what? probably will. Will be a honey, a honey. What the hell does that mean? Um, uh, a terrific movie, a uh, uh, wonderful. Dude, that sounds like a weird like sex trap. <laughs> like, oh my, no, no, no. Uh, okay, like now a... we've really gone off the rails. Yeah. It's going to be swell. That's right. gonna be a swell. honey. That's not a thing. Steve. A honey of a movie. A honey of a movie. You never that's, heard no, of? that's a honey not a of thing. A, that's not a term. I swear to God, is help me, help me, viewers, uh, that, listeners. This is help a me. honey of a movie. What planet oh, yeah. are you that, living that's on? A, that's a, that's what do you think a... you're in a Philip Marlowe book? <laughs> what do you think you are? Unbelievable. All right, guys, we gotta go. It's late. Steve, always a pleasure. And Likewise. I'll, by the way, guys, I promise. Um, <laughs> I'll try and make this more frequent. You know. Oh, we're only He's got two, two kids, though. Yeah, we're only two. We're we're only two <laughs> weeks into it. I should be able to get another podcast out in the next two to three weeks. I really should. At this point, we should be okay. All right. As always, Steve. See you next time. Uh-huh.